It is a period of civil war. Star Wars fans, striking from social media, have convinced themselves that they've won their first victory against the evil Walt Disney Company. During the tantrum, disgruntled fans managed to organize a tiny boycott of the mouse's newest film, Solo, a non-controversial Star Wars film with still enough power to draw negative reviews from fans who didn't see the movie. Annoying both the fandom's Disney apologists and haters alike, Star Wars Beyond the Films races to put out another episode, custodians of the fandom rationality that can save their fandom and restore civility to the community. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 235 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the feedback the Falcon gets from its peculiar dialect of three droid brains, the EU guru himself, our count of these two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody. Hey, three brains are better than none, I guess. Um, what do you think? That, that opening crawl there. Too much? Too much? I'm, I'm reminded, it, it, it almost makes me nostalgic for the old uh, chrono radio days where I used to, you know, use a hook at the beginning of every episode, you know, blah, 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 blah. Chrono radio begins in 60 seconds, and then came the opening music so that I could hook people in at first. I'm sure this one will hook people. It will probably also piss them off in some cases. Um, but but I thought that was a good parody of just how crazy fandom uh, has become at this point. Um, although that one tends to lean one particular direction just because of the the nature of being able to use the boycott as an example. But uh, hopefully people are hooked and want to listen now as opposed to throwing their iPods and phones and stuff uh, out of car windows. Which, by the way, we're not even allowed to touch in Georgia anymore. As of June 1st, I believe it is. Um, I think it's June 1st. Uh, we're not allowed to touch our phones while we're driving anymore. Like, not just you can't text, you can't hold it to your ear and talk. Now, it is hands-free only or uh, punishment. See, that? that's Oregon already. I thought you were talking about you couldn't touch your window. I'm like, what if you got a broken window that you got to slide up every so often? Like, no, you can't touch your not. phone. You can't touch your phone. <laughs> You know, I, I, for me, the opening, I think it's kind of it's befitting of our fandom at this moment. I mean, we're at a point where everyone is charged up one direction or the other on almost any topic. Uh, you know, I, I'm coming across people that I would have thought would have loved certain movies that disliked them. Certain people that I thought would love certain books or disliking them. Even myself, I struggle with certain aspects of my fandom right now. I mean, our last episode when we were talking about the toxicity in fandom and stuff, it's it's a very on 
point topic right now for our fandom. And I don't think it's going to be going away anytime soon. Um, you know, yeah, we poke fun at it, but I think, you know, in my life, if you're not having fun, you're working too hard. And one thing about me you can tell is I don't work very hard. I have a lot of fun. So I, I think that's kind of, you know, take that for what it was, was us having some fun with the situation. We really can't control the situation. We can just poke fun and, and chink up our armor. So, uh, that's kind of where we're at with that. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we're going to continue to talk about your feedback. Yes, we uh, had that toxicity email. We have some solo stuff. So we've got a plethora of email here for you. Consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure, Beyond the Films. That's right. And I would actually say that in essence, and we talked about this with Star Wars, how in essence there's sort of like four different sides. It's not the three it's usually presented as. It's not the Empire, the Rebels, and everybody caught in between, or the uh, Galactic Republic and the Separatists and everybody caught in between. There's also sort of those who are so far beyond the scale of where the conflict is that they're just not affected by it at all. They're not picking sides. They're not caught in the middle. They're just not there. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, we tend to think of what's happening in fandom as sort of a pro-Disney, anti-Disney thing, or pro-new canon, anti-new canon thing, which is kind of the same thing. But I would say that we are probably just as passionate as the people on either side of the argument in trying to find a path through, and a path for civility and so forth. So I don't want to give the impression that we are uh, sort of naming the two sides and that those are the people who are very passionate or extreme about it, because I think that to some degree, even trying to save the fandom to some degree or trying to save the civility of fandom is itself kind of something we can get caught up in the energy of and trying to make it work. I'd like to think that it's a more positive approach, but certainly those who argue for either side uh, in sort of the bigger conflict out there is probably going to lean one way or the other, um, not towards the center. No, you you had a great line that Kira said that really resonates with me with this, because as we take that middle path, I find that there are times that, you know, I, I can relate with both of those two extremist sides to a degree. But then I have to remind myself, like, I don't want to relate too much because I'm not in that mindset. I want to, you know, I want to take that middle path and I want to bring as many people from either side with me. <laughs> We've got what's the Lando and Kira both have been good models for productive fandom recently with their quotes. In Solo, you've got Lando's line, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, but I accept it. Which is kind of the point at which I'm wondering when fandom reaches that point. We'll talk about this more later, maybe as like an ending of the show. Because I had a chance to think quite a bit about this whole situation of fandom and the psychology of it Um Actually, earlier today, I'm sitting there getting an oil change, and I started really kind of ruminating on it and just kind of staring off into space. People probably thought that I was on drugs or something. Um, but there's there's some thoughts I wanted to put out there and some questions I wanted to put out there that kind of relate to Lando's quote there. But then Kira, in the book Most Wanted, which is set, it seems, probably within about a year of Solo, because at that point, both she and Han are claiming to be 18 years old and in the film – at least at the beginning. Uh, at the beginning of the film, 
Han is 19 and she is 18. So there should be, it should be fairly close to the beginning of the film. But Kira has an interesting line in there, which is, it would be deeply impractical to continue on the wrong path just for the sake of argument. Um, and I thought that that is something that we don't see nearly enough today. It's much more, whether it's fandom or anything else, you sort of see people gravitate toward a side. They latch onto that bone, so to speak, and they're just going to keep shaking it as much as possible. Uh, even if it turns out that it's counterproductive, even to themselves, to hold on to that position or to hold on to whatever it is that they're obsessing over because it's seen as weakness or defeat or something to simply let go. Um, but we'll talk about that more later. We have quite a few emails that came in on this subject. Uh, we'll apologize ahead of time to Andrew Gilbertson. We want to try to get his feedback into an episode. He sent audio feedback, though, that by itself was 55 minutes long which is about the length of we're, of what we're trying to hit for an episode. So we need to actually listen and figure out which bits and pieces to use and, and how we want to respond to it before we can actually use it. So I would expect there to be an episode with that. It may be a couple from now, but it'll give us a chance to listen, parcel it out, and figure out exactly what we want to say. But we do have quite a few here also uh, from both those you've heard from before on feedback episodes, and in some cases, people you may have seen uh, in some of the Facebook community, uh, but maybe not people who have written in very often to the show. So an interesting uh, response here. So we'll start out, actually, we'll start and end. We'll make him sort of the bookends here, the Alpha and the Omega with Dom Nardi. Because he sent a toxicity episode feedback email back near the end of April, and then he sent one on the last day of May as sort of a follow-up and further thoughts. And I think that those make for a nice bookend, if only because we're hearing from the same person after a chance to ruminate uh as well, or I guess ruminate's not the right word. Isn't ruminate whenever you you throw up your own lunch and you you, you chew it again like a cow or something? I uh, had a chance to think on this again. So let's start with the first item uh, that Dom sent in. He says, Hi, Mark and Nathan. Really enjoyed your latest episode. There's a lot to think about. In general, I absolutely share your frustration with fandom. Star Wars fandom just isn't as fun as it used to be. There are a few parts to this that I wanted to touch on, partly because I think there are additional things driving the division. This email is so long, I'm actually dividing it into parts. Part one, anti-diversity or anti-pro-diversity. I do agree that the controversy, he puts that in quotes, surrounding diversity is a big factor in the current toxicity, but I think the situation is a bit more complicated than mere sexism, racism, etc. To be clear, I absolutely acknowledge that there is some segment of alt-right fans who are attacking the movies and actors because they don't like diversity. However, and I say this as somebody who believes there's a lot of empirical evidence regarding the importance of representation— I think the focus on this type of bigotry is overshadowing the real debate about diversity and is ultimately unhelpful. Instead, I think the real debate is how much to prioritize representation, as well as fears among some fans, unfounded or not, that diversity is driving the storytelling. It's a subtle distinction, but important. For example, the complaint I see and hear most frequently about Rey isn't that she's a woman, but rather that she is an overpowered and dull character. People making this complaint will sometimes say they believe Lucasfilm and Disney made her overpowered because Kathleen Kennedy has an agenda to promote strong female characters and is afraid to show a female who fails. 
These people are also usually quick to praise Ahsoka, Leia, and even Jyn Erso as positive examples of strong female characters, but also blame an SJW, that is social justice warrior, or diversity agenda for undermining Rey. So the crux of the argument as I see it is that they see concerns about representation as imposing on the story in a negative way. If we take this line of argument at face value, and I do until I have evidence people are arguing in bad faith, then these people would presumably be happy with Rey as a strong female character if she wasn't overpowered or had failed more. There's a video by Thor Skywalker on YouTube that's probably the best encapsulation of this argument. The video in question that he's talking about is one entitled Rey vs. Ahsoka, a character cross-examination battle. So, to continue with what he says. It's also one I've heard from friends whom I believe aren't sexist and otherwise enjoy having strong females in Star Wars. Unfortunately, the backlash to the backlash hasn't really done much to engage with this debate constructively. Too often, people defending the films, Ray in particular, will just call any criticisms sexist. It's as if people take any criticism of the character arc as criticism based in race slash gender. I encountered this personally when after The Force Awakens, I said on a friend's Facebook post, I thought Ray learned Force powers a bit too easily. One of that person's friends then scolded me for being hypocritical because Luke was also powerful. When I pointed out that Luke really didn't use the Force that much in the first movie, waited several years, and then trained with Yoda, her response was that I was just spoiling the fun for female fans. And I get it. I can get the fact that for a lot of women, people of color, and underrepresented communities, seeing somebody who looks or sounds like you can be really exciting. The more people who feel welcome in our fandom, the better. But I also think we need to do a better job at actually engaging with people's arguments and get at the root of what they're actually saying rather than just presuming a bad motive. And I really do think there is a sizable contingent of fans who see themselves as fine with or even supportive of diversity on screen, but who worry concerns about diversity are leading to weaker stories. For the record, because it must be said, I don't think my problems with Rey's character arc in The Force Awakens were the result of some SJW agenda. I just thought it was bad writing. The Last Jedi actually improved her character for me. Incidentally, we saw something similar during the hubbub around the 2016 Ghostbusters film. Again, just look at YouTube comments on the trailer and you'll see that sexism is real. But not all criticism of the film was sexist, but most of it was treated as sexist. For example, some guy at a YouTube channel called Cinemassacres posted a video saying he wasn't going to watch the film because the original Ghostbusters was special to him and he was upset that the new movie was going to reboot the continuity. He said it wasn't about the gender of the new Ghostbusters and even said he'd have been fine if the new movie had the older Ghostbusters pass the torch to the female Ghostbusters, even citing The Force Awakens as a way to do this. This guy then got attacked by major media publications and even Patton Oswalt, basically calling him an overgrown man-child. I've never watched Cinemassacres aside from that one video and thought the new Ghostbusters movie was okay, but the backlash and the way people just casually called anyone who criticized the movie sexist really unnerved me. It's fine for people to disagree, but let's make sure we're at least agreeing what we're disagreeing about. There's a good article on it over at the New York Times. It's an article uh, about Ghostbusters internet attacks. He gives the link. It is from June 19th of 2016. Section 2, he calls woke bros. Another aspect to this issue is what, to borrow a term from the Beltway Banthas podcast, I call the woke bros. People who are so overzealous in attacking sexism and racism that they see it even where it might not exist. For example, the numerous hot takes calling Poe in The Last Jedi an example of toxic masculinity because he disobeyed Holdo. Now, to anyone who actually paid attention to the film, this seems like a stretch. 
Poe obviously respects Leia, seemed to have no problem with Holdo initially, aside from being surprised at her dress and hair color, and his concerns about Holdo were shared by Finn, Rose, and many other Resistance members. Granted, we can't be 100% sure about Poe because we never see him interact with a male superior, but he seems like somebody who is just generally dismissive of authority and cocky. Yet, I continue to see this Poe as toxic masculinity argument shared online as if that's obviously what Ryan Johnson was going for. Likewise, there are people who are upset that Ryan Johnson denied the scene in which Finn's back-to-sack leaks on Poe wasn't intended as an allusion to gay sex. Those commenters claim Ryan Johnson is not being honest about this. What? I don't know. That's a new one to me, too. Wow. (laughs) To continue. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry. It's going to take me a second to continue. I just, I, I, my brain is going, <laughs> what? That bag, that bag's leaking all over. Get your fluids off me. What the hell? Man, man, can we all agree that accidental fluid exchange can be a, a, a difficult topic for anyone to deal with on film? Um, all right. Continuing on with what he says here. Not to mention how whenever Lucasfilm announces a new director or writer, Twitter erupts in anger if it's not a woman or person of color. Again, having more women and persons of color working on Star Wars films would be great, but attacking Lucasfilm and Disney for not finding the right person right now seems misguided. I thought it was particularly ironic that a lot of these fans were urging Disney to hire Ava DuVernay. I'm assuming I'm saying that right. I've never heard of this person in my life, so I'm assuming that that's how it's pronounced. Even though she had never directed a major sci-fi film before that point, and her wrinkle in time bombed at the box office. Again, their heart was in the right place, but it sends the message that there's a contingent of fans who, like the alt-right, seem to focus excessively on a person's race or gender and not on their qualifications as director. The point is, I think we have both a problem with bigotry in this country and a problem with overzealous attempts to correct for said bigotry, i.e. the alt-right and woke bros. I'm not going to pretend they're morally equivalent. Bigotry is anathema to a small-l liberal democracy, whereas people who call out bigotry have their hearts in the right place. We do better to err on the side of respecting diversity and greater representation. That said, I spent more time calling out the latter because I don't think they've been called out but are contributing to the toxicity in fandom. It's honestly difficult to watch Star Wars becoming a battleground in the culture wars. We as fans have to get to a point where we can at least respect that not everybody prioritizes diversity and representation to the same extent. For some fans, it might be the number one thing on their list of what they want out of Star Wars, while for others, it might be number 10. What I said above, the current focus on diversity often clouds the real issues and real disagreements amongst fans. Third section, then he has a conclusion. Ignoring arguments. Another problem I see contributing to toxicity in fandom is that people are arguing, but it's pretty clear they're not actually reading what the other side is saying. The discussion around The Last Jedi is a perfect example of this. Now, personally, I actually loved The Last Jedi, at least the first two-thirds the first time I saw it. Then I read some criticisms, and my opinion changed. I still like the film, but it's got more than its fair share of writing issues. But I've been frankly frustrated by the number of think pieces, videos, etc. that just flat-out call criticisms of The Last Jedi wrong, as if they can objectively prove their opinion. These authors will bring up a point in defense of The Last Jedi when it's actually quite clear that the author hasn't actually read any of the more well-reasoned critiques of the film. For example, just this morning I saw an article calling critics of The Last Jedi hypocritical because they wanted more backstory for Snoke in The Last Jedi, but didn't care about the fact that we didn't get backstory for Palpatine in the original trilogy. 
Well, if that person had actually done any research, they realize that the criticism is based in large part on the fact that Palpatine in the original trilogy plays a different role than Snoke in the sequel trilogy. Where Palpatine was simply the head of the Empire that we already knew existed at the start of the original trilogy, the sequel trilogy is a sequel to a story we already saw. Return of the Jedi ended with a happy ending, but The Force Awakens undid that. So the question isn't so much where was Snoke born and what does his resume look like, so much as who is this guy who undid everything our heroes fought for and what is his place in the overall saga? Now, people can disagree about how much backstory they needed about Snoke to feel invested in his character and the conflict in the sequel films. I understand why some people don't need an elaborate backstory. I watch plenty of Marvel movies just fine and don't really care about the villains. But just claiming that he's equivalent to Palpatine and fans are being hypocritical really suggests a lack of respect for people who disagree. Unfortunately, The Last Jedi has created multiple splits like this where people seem to be talking past each other. From the hyperspace kamikaze move to bitter old Luke, a lot of things in the movie have proven divisive. And while I find myself agreeing a lot with the criticisms, I think for a lot of these issues, there is no objective solution. Some people like old Luke because it's a more realistic take on the character, whereas others prefer Luke as an aspirational hero. Somebody isn't wrong for enjoying their Star Wars characters as one instead of the other, yet you wouldn't know that from the online debate. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people defending The Last Jedi attack other fans for, quote, being stuck in the past, or too nostalgic, or afraid of change, because they didn't like the way Luke was handled. And for the record, I actually liked most of Luke in The Last Jedi. His conclusion. If there's a point to this long email, it's that a lot of the toxicity in fandom seems to come from people promoting their agendas rather than really listening to what other people have to say. If you like The Last Jedi, you're going to tell other people why they're stupid for not liking it. If you're suspicious of diversity, then you're going to tell people why the new films are an SJW plot. I don't really know how to solve this, because it seems like our constant polarization and fighting is a larger feature of our society. With the increased suspicion on Facebook nowadays, I wonder if we're just going to see more and more people sign off social media and only engage in fandom in person. Unfortunately, that also means it might get lonelier. I remember how lonely fandom was in the 80s and 90s when it seemed like you were the biggest geek ever. Social media made it easy to just chat with fans from around the world, but it also seems to have coarsened the nature of that discourse. Sorry guys, I've got no solutions for you. Thanks, Dom Nardi. Yeah, no, that's the big problem is that the solutions are not in high demand or supply right now. Like they're in high demand. We just don't have a supply of it. Um, I think the, the main issue here is we've got so many different little trilogies. Now we've got three major trilogies. We've got TV shows. We've got the books, the comics. There's just a niche for everybody. Everybody kind of loves their own little niche. Everybody wants to share what they love. And then as you start to have that communication with other people, you find out what you love. Fan B and C can't stand. And if you don't have, and that's the point you're getting at there, if you don't discuss out why you feel the way you feel about certain things, you'll never get to that heart of understanding with the other person. And I think sometimes some people just have a way of coming across very cross, uh, angry, uh, bitchy, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, like, like my mom and my sister, like I love them to death, but they have a natural ability to look at the negative side of most situations. Uh, and sometimes it can be a really thorn in, in our family side for certain events. And then my wife has a different direction with that where she doesn't go negative. She goes dark side. Like the worst thing that could happen to your kid at a, at a carnival, she won't let your kid out of sight because there's somebody out there that's going to take your kid. Like the threat's real, but. 
I'm like, we, we don't need to be living under a constant state of, of lockdown here because someone's going to show up out of the crowd and take our kid. But at the same time, I'm like, I recognize the fact that, yeah, her concerns are legit, but I don't think we need to be living in under 24-7, 100% of the time state of alarm. Uh, and so, I don't know, I think, I think there's a lot of, of those aspects of, of people that we just, I think we've forgotten how to interact one-on-one as individuals anymore. And there are some people that still have that skill or are slowly forgetting the skill and have enough of it that we can still engage. But they need to get back to something like that, like more debate classes in school or something, because it seems like when you come across somebody that, that tells you you're wrong, the quick solution is I'll just turn my back and pretend you don't exist anymore. And and that's where it gets to that, that aspect, like you're saying, Donald, where it just becomes so lonely because we're all locked away in our own little worlds. We're all in our own group of people thinking the same way, attacking the one person that comes in there thinking the other way. Everybody throwing popcorn. It's like watching the 100s, one crew in, inside their bunker. It's like, oh, man, you're either with one crew or you're not. And they're all just like, you're not with us. You're going to kill him. He's not with us. He said he likes Ray. Like, whoa, calm down people seriously so a few things i was sort of taking notes as you were talking based on what i heard as i was reading the email it's always tough to take notes if you're the one reading it but i got you i got you this time um so a few things one i do think that just like you was talking about how there's sort of a societal reflection in fandom we talked about that last time about just you know as as society becomes more toxic and polarized and social media becomes sort of a driving force of that you see that reflected in fandom and other things. Um, I'd like to think that it was that basically society was starting to lean that direction and then that toxicity leaked into fandom and infected it rather than things like fandom having that effect on society. Um, I think we, in a lot of ways, as a fan community, we are partly to blame for what has happened within the community, but also at the same time partly uh, sort of a second-tier effect of what's already happening around us in society. And it's interesting because in, you also see in society one of the examples that he brought up, which is this idea that you're, that someone who is so primed and ready to defend against the things that need to be defended against, sexism, racism, and so on, may get to a point where they are so primed and ready that they're seeing it everywhere. Uh, that, for a while, was one of the big criticisms of an organization that did a lot of good early on, like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which sometimes got to a point where it would then see racism where it didn't necessarily exist, or most would see would say that it's not existing, overreach a little bit, and all of a sudden an organization that at least early on was doing a lot of good is being seen now by a lot in society, at least on one side of society, as sort of an enemy in the question of looking for uh, racial equality and getting away from racism. It's just kind of a uh, this thing where we have to be really careful that we're fighting the, again, sort of fighting the battles that need fighting and fighting the battles that are real rather than otherwise. Um, but at the same time, we have to be rational about the way that we fight such things. You take, I, I would say that the, the current controversy shows an interesting dynamic of how society is sort of, of not quite sure what to do on different lines of the political spectrum, on different lines of what companies should do, and how there's really just not a uh, a unified response to come from companies because we had the Roseanne thing recently. Roseanne uh, using a, basically a description of Valerie Jarrett, an African-American who is a former advisor to former President Obama, um, in a way that came off as racist. 
she gets fired immediately by ABC from her show. The show gets canceled, but they may be reviving it based around the Darlene character, I guess, uh, the Sarah Gilbert character. I think that was the right daughter's name. Um, yes, yes. It's been a long time since I've seen Roseanne. No, but I'm glad you mentioned this because when you're done, I, I have a point on Roseanne too. So it's like how fortuitous that that was the – yes. But then the flip side of this is almost immediately you had the controversy over Samantha B. She is someone who is sort of known for the the edginess and the language that she uses. It's a she, her presentation is exactly what TBS you know TBS got exactly what they expected with her presentation. She in a segment refers to um, uh, Ivanka Trump who be, be on an issue related to immigration. Um, for, for daring to show herself in a picture with her kid or something. It wound up leading to a discussion on immigration and parents being separated from children, which is a major issue that needs to be addressed. But because presumably Ivanka wasn't addressing it at the time, I guess, she referred to her as a feckless C-word, which then blew up again. And then there was the whole call for, well, she should be fired too. And well, why hasn't she? And all that kind of stuff. And it's sort of this thing of there's an expectation of what should happen in certain cases as if somehow society has... You know, like, we're like, there's government rules on what you can be fired for when it comes to speech. And it's not usually the way that that works. The freedom of speech isn't freedom from consequence of speech, but it's also not demanding something of employers. And every time you see these examples, it's always like, well, let me grab a counter example and use that to try to disprove what your side is doing and say that it's wrong. Because society is still kind of trying to hash out these issues of how do you deal with this in a social media, fast moving news cycle age with the Roseannes or the Samantha Bees or the whoever uh, happens to be the, you know, the topic of the day and deal with it in a way that still allows due process um, and fairness, but at the same time tries to stop the proliferation of things that we see as toxic to society. That society in general agrees is toxic to society, though to what extent uh, there's certainly all kinds of debate out there. So there's, so I would say that that same type of thing you're seeing within fandom, this idea of you got to be careful and we've got to find a rational way to approach things. Um, I would say that um, uh, we do see a lot of instances of uh, people talking past each other, but I think part of that is not only are people not reading other people's responses, which is the same thing as if you're in a debate in person of not listening to the other person and spending all the time there talking, just formulating what your next point's going to be in your head. So as soon as they're done talking, you blast away without actually addressing what they said because you weren't really listening. But added to that is the fact that you also get a lot of reinforcement. Social media allows people to find others with their mindset and sort of uh, at the same time that it's opening up the world to us, it makes it much more easy to balkanize and sort of cluster around people in a pod who happen to sort of have the same views that we do or that they do, um, that in doing so, you're you're ab enabling yourself to reinforce constantly while ignoring the other side uh, even more easily. Um, I would say that the idea that any criticism of something that has an element of gender, sex, etc., uh, race, being able to take that and turn that into, well, that's the only reason you're criticizing it, as was the thing with, you know, Ray and, oh, well, you're just sexist or you just don't understand women to be able to, un to like Ray in The Force Awakens. Um, remember, that was basically the Wendig approach to any criticism to Aftermath. And many of his fans, right? Oh, well, you just don't like the book, not because it's poorly written or written in a, a present tense and kind of a meh way full of sentence fragments. No, it's because Sinjir Rathvelis is a gay man and you're just a homophobe. That's why you don't like the book. And unfortunately, we saw the same kind of crap recently with Daniel Jose Older, um, who in defending against people who are criticizing aspects, I guess, of Last Shot, which I thought was much better than the Aftermath books, um, but a book in which... 
there was a a gender non-binary character. Um, Taka. It, Taka. It was it was well, he was in there or she was in there was what the people were complaining about. He's like, no, they were in there. You use the gender non-binary pronoun because he was using they in the book. They were in there. Because that was the intent to introduce this character and such. And if you don't like it, basically F off. And he took an almost, he almost went beyond the Wendig level of going off on people who disagreed because at least Wendig was like, well, this was not my intention to shock, but, or to put something in your face, but if you don't like it, you're a homophobe. And Older's like, yeah, I put it in your face on purpose and you're exacting exactly the way I expected you transphobic, blah, blah, blah. Right. That he just kind of went over the top with it with social media. I haven't seen it myself. That's it's one of those things where I kept getting people sending me stuff saying, you know, can you believe what's going on? So it may be exaggerated, but that's the the impression that I've received of that situation. Um, So that sort of the Windig thing is beyond anything else. And I've got a few more, but go ahead. I know you've recently interviewed him. Yeah, I did. I I managed to have a small little interview with him. Great interview. Uh, and there was some interesting things like, like we were talking about Ewoks and stuff and his, his assumption on Ewoks was different than my assumption on Ewoks. But that character was one that I kind of wish I would have brought it up because I think the only issue I had with the character wasn't so much that they used the they throughout it. It was that every other character was automatically recognizing that this person was a they and not a him or a her when the character was introduced as Han Solo. You know, when we first meet the character, he's trampsing around pretending to be Han, who is clearly a dude. So at that moment, I'm like, I thought it was a typo that, you know, if you want to make a character like that, that's fine. But address it for what it is. When Han's literally talking to Leia and calling Taka they, that felt really weird. I was like, when did we address that this is the way he wants to be preferred talked? I mean, I kept seeing him as a, as a guy because he was introduced as Han Solo. He was like the wannabe Han Solo. So you know, that was where I was at. And I had a really hard time with the fact that Han, Lando, everybody that was talking to this character just automatically knew that this character wanted to go by they. They never once addressed it. You had the character Aro, the Gungan, who come at Han like, oh, you're going to talk to me like me so this. Have you ever met a Gungan before? Did you just assume my dialect? Yes. And I loved like that. The way that character played out and that interaction played out, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was brilliant. But the Taka character, I kept getting back to, I didn't care that Taka thought of himself as them, themselves or, or their self or whatever. But it was when Han immediately just picked up on that and had, I was like, how, where, what tipped off that to Han? Like, how did he know? Because I sure as hell didn't. I thought it was a damn typo. Like, I, I would not have known that any other time. And I think that's where I would, as somebody that would like to see that introduced in the right way, I don't like just throwing it in there like that because it feels heavy handed. Now, you put it in a way where, where Taka says something to Han, the way Arod said something to Han, that feels, that feels more natural because it feels like how it would come up in a, in a course of conversation. Um, getting back to what you were saying about the Roseanne thing though, uh, and you talked about how people take fuel for the sides and stuff. So Roseanne, she says her things, she gets fired, they pull all her shows, then they go after Samantha B. They're like, and, and I recall it was something like Trump going, on when she said this word about my wife and we should pull her and i'm like well didn't like part of your running to president was calling hillary that word and you had no problem about everybody calling her that word you were talking about grabbing women by that word and yeah you know, we're, we're, nobody seems to care there so i i found that there was a little bit of irony there when people were throwing that at each other but it made me stop and think though okay i like the roseanne show i don't care what the the character Roseanne on the show does compared to the actress Roseanne who's not playing the character Roseanne when she's on Twitter. So it made me stop and think, what if Harrison Ford pulled this stunt? 
Would we really be demanding that every Star Wars film that he is in be pulled off TV and never seen again? I don't think that the people in that scenario would want the same burning of the pitchforks and torches running outside Harrison Ford's gate and pull these Star Wars movies. I think that we would have a different reaction there. But I think because Roseanne's just a show that a lot of people are easily dismissive of, that we're like, yeah, let's pull it all. Let's let's get it out of there. But to me, I feel like that's a very extreme reaction. When you think about all the other families, the people that aren't even on the TV screen, that they put in their hard work to make that program, to put it out there, to entertain people. And we're pulling that out because of an act or something they did in their personal life. Finer, do something like that. But doing that to everyone else, to me, that seems hardcore extreme. And that's where I have an issue. It's like, to me, it's like now you're going out of your way to ruin, you know, people's lives over a stupid choice of words. You know, like people are stupid all the time, but to sit there and hold them for every stupid mistake they've ever made and never forgive them and, and you know, and, and throw them into a, a cell and, and all this other stuff. To me, I, I feels like we're really pushing that. And, and I, it's not everybody. It's just. Right now, this is the hot topic button point, but yeah, that definitely had me thinking of certain things. And I kept going back to that. Like, what if it was Harrison Ford? Like Samantha B. Like, if Samantha B was Carrie Fisher, everybody'd be just okay with it because that's just Carrie Fisher. That's what Carrie Fisher does. You know, I mean, like Carrie Fisher got away with a lot of stuff that other people today would not be able to get away with. And we were okay because she was our princess. So let me hit those before I circle back to to a couple of the other thoughts from from Dom's email. Um, I do think that there is we we have a need to separate a person as a character versus the character versus the person as an actor right the the real person versus the character and i have a hard time with the idea oftentimes of you know how much am i supposed to really care about the actor as a person if i'm enjoying the product that they have produced like you know I'm kind of a rule of law kind of guy. You work within the system and try to change it. Um, wasn't a big fan of Wesley Snipes dodging the taxes and all that kind of stuff, right? But I could still watch and enjoy the Blade films. I just sometimes snickered at the idea that maybe the vampires he was trying to kill were coming to collect his taxes, right? <laughs> um, but there, there's certain things where uh, something that happens with an actor can very much color the actor themselves um, in a bad light. And that just becomes something that is unavoidable to think about when you see the performance. But I'd like to think that most of the time we can separate characters from the people. Because I'm also one of these people who sits back and says, I'm sorry, you're an entertainer. You're Kanye West, for instance. Did you all of a sudden become a policy expert while I was asleep? Why should we give the (laughs) slightest crap about the political views of Kanye West? Right. Whatever side he's supporting at any given time, right? Um, It's just kind of one of those things where... And, and I, and, but, but I'm someone, someone again who sort of values the intellectual honesty. I like the idea of if there are people who are experts on something, we should be listening to the experts before making decisions. We should be making data driven decisions. Um, so I, I'm someone who's even a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, you have a, a school shooting and all of a sudden the, the survivors are going on television for weeks pushing gun policy. I'm like, well, talk about your experience and the harrow, the harrowing nature of what happened, because that will arouse sympathy and get people to, uh, to consider the issue. But the fact that you were a victim of something or nearly a victim of something doesn't automatically confer expert status on you. When did you all of a sudden become a, a policy expert on gun violence in the United States or the Second Amendment or uh, the Heller case, et cetera, et cetera, by the very nature of being able to survive a horrible terrible situation that never should have happened in the first place um and it's just to me it's sort of one of those things where we have to be really careful what we consider 
what, what opinions we value from where, in essence, so that by the time we actually make decisions, we're trying to make the most rational, correct decisions possible. Because, you know, as as the old thing used to say on the sign at the uh, zoo where my dad used to uh, – uh, be their on-call vet when he had his pri- was in his private practice and was an on-call with them. Uh, opinions are like a-holes. Everybody has one. Mm-hmm. Some are stinkier than others, and some are stinkier than others. Um, I do think though that that you bring up the idea that it is sort of a selective outrage. It's sort of a we're waiting for someone we don't like to do something that will cause us to be able to go after them. Like I would argue that probably many of the people going after Roseanne, not all. Uh, I don't have a thing. One way or the other for Roseanne, but I think what she said was beyond the pale. It was kind of out of nowhere, and she probably there probably should have been something. Again, free speech does not mean free freedom from the consequences of speech. It is protection from the government cutting off your free speech. Not an employer, not a Facebook page, not uh, after you sign the terms of service for a message board or something. That is a different beast. Um, but. I would imagine that most of the people who disliked Roseanne already use that as a jumping off point. And part of with Samantha B is that's kind of who Samantha B is and the way that she speaks. And they kind of knew what they were getting. It was a scripted segment. It wasn't like the word she just threw in there. And those who support Samantha B would have probably been the ones who would have been most, you know, shocked if Roseanne had used the same word. But it's just like, oh, it's Samantha B. You know, we support her, therefore. We're fine with it. It's really sort of a question of, is there a societal standard? I would argue there isn't at this point. Um, and is it re- and does it oftentimes come down to sort of a selective outrage and not just in terms of employers, but as you said, you know, if it was fandom, if Harrison Ford said something, would it be, you know, Harrison Ford needs to be gone? Um, uh, if, shoot, I don't know. I mean, say that this was before the fourth, uh, the last Jedi came out and Mark Hamill said something. Then does that mean we need to recast Luke or leave Luke out of the Last Jedi? Or Daisy, you know, Daisy says something tomorrow. <laughs> like, we'll see that. That's the thing, though. But Daisy Ridley, though, would draw ire from at least part of society because there's already a contingent against her and the character of Rey in general. They would be the ones looking for that kind of thing. That's like, and and, and I'll get to this later about how a lot of the stuff that we see going on. And sort of the anti-Disney things like the boycott of Solo and whatnot, from a practical standpoint, have no hope of success whatsoever. But that there may be something else from a positive perspective that comes out of it that has nothing to do with actually changing something, but has everything to do with the people themselves and what they need. Um, but it was, it struck me that if, if somebody really wants to take down Kathleen Kennedy, it's not, go- Kathleen Kennedy is not going to be gone by, well, Solo slightly underperformed. It's still the number one at the box office. And yeah, it still broke a record over Memorial Day weekend, but, but it underperformed. Kathleen Kennedy must go. And they've had to switch directors. Kathleen Kennedy must go, you know, because Facebook and Twitter know better how to make movies than someone who's produced all this stuff. Um, that's not going to be what gets her to go. It's not going to be a petition. It's not going to be some kind of fandom gripe. It's not going to be a boycott. It's going to be a situation where Kathleen Kennedy does something that crosses the line in a racist, sexist, um, homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera sort of way that turns people against her in a Roseanne-esque way or a Samantha B-esque way. And Disney, who was the people that that fired Roseanne. Disney has a much more family-friendly um, sort of v- uh, visage that they tried, or facade, maybe, depending on if you believe it's real or not, um, that they are trying to maintain, um, would probably be the one to say, sorry, we're showing you the door. But it's not going to be because fans are protesting. It's going to be 
that she either retires, moves on to something else, or she steps on a landmine that she herself planted. Um, that's, that, that's where I think the selective outrage will probably come into play if there is such a thing. Um, but two of the things that, that Dom said, the other two things I want to mention, one is that I do agree. I think most Star Wars fans are generally for diversity and representation. I think most Star Wars fans are quick to, to tout the fact that Star Wars had a strong female lead with Leia in a time when that really wasn't a thing. And that Ahsoka is a really strong female lead character of the series she was in, or at least she grows into being one. Um, and that in essence, Star Wars has been trying to be at the forefront of that, uh, in a time when it wasn't. Now it's kind of trying to catch up to some degree, but would agree that sort of diversity and representation and fans being able to see themselves in the characters and the way we define themselves now, as we talked about uh, last episode, that is a good thing, though how much you should prioritize it is the question, as Dom mentioned, uh, and that it shouldn't be at the expense of a story. But at the same time, I, I would say that that doesn't necessarily explain all of it that's out there, uh, all of the negativity. It's not just a, well, it shouldn't impact the story because, I mean, Diego Luna, right? Uh, so so Cassian, Chirrut, Baze, did the race of those characters make the slightest difference in the film? No, right? Except uh, for the fact that it allowed more groups represented. But you still had that kind of backlash against the casting choices of Rogue One. So it isn't just an impact on story, because that had no impact on story. So there is a contingent that is in it specifically for anti-diversity. Um, but I would agree that there is, to to a large extent, a contingent out there who's more concerned, and, and I would say I would, I'd be one of them, that if you're casting, regardless of how you're casting, it should be uh, with the eye towards the story and what it calls for basically um and if you can use representation within whatever the story calls for go for it but i did find it interesting that i thought that maybe solo would be the film that would not ignite the diversity issues because solo is a film where you, let's say you have i'd say there's four main characters would you say you got han lando beckett and kira right and we can toss in in uh voss as well as human characters okay we toss in voss there so there's five Okay, um, Dryden Voss. So of those characters, four of them are white, right? Four of them are male. So if it's a, well, it's too much diversity, then this is sort of scrolling it back to sort of the, the older Star Wars. It was very dominated by uh, white characters and male characters, right? And true, we haven't really seen a lot of backlash on a diversity uh, perspective coming from the same people who were against it, say, for Rogue One. But what's interesting is what I'm now seeing online is the opposite, which is people coming out and saying, oh, see, a movie that was diverse had a lot of people upset, and here's Solo and not a peep. And that becomes the controversy. That becomes the issue that brings this back to the fore and causes the sniping back and forth about the diversity and representation issue. Um, even when you have something that, that sort of swings the opposite way and should have perhaps appeased those who were the angriest before, you still wind up with the, the spite going back and forth. I'm not sure, as Don said, I'm not sure there is necessarily a solution other than as individuals trying to be rational, trying to be civil to one another and trying to find fans um, to interact with that aren't on ideological extremes, um, which may mean pairing things back to some degree, um, but finding healthier fandom relationships to be part of. No, we've always said if, if your fandom's not bringing you joy, you're doing it wrong. And unfortunately, you know, you could be doing the same thing, but if the people around you have become toxified, 
they're bringing toxicity into your life and you're being poisoned through your interaction with them. So you're going to have to remove yourself from that or risk becoming poisoned. All right, our next one comes from Luke Van Horn. Luke is someone who has helped me quite often on the Star Wars Timeline Gold, a lot of times uh, finding rare, obscure items uh, from, like, gaming magazines and stuff and sending summaries for them. So someone I've known for a while. Um, and his comments were, I just listened to the new episode, and combined with your comments on the YouTube video explaining why the Star Wars Timeline Gold is ending, I think you and Mark have hit on a number of similar issues that I've been facing. Number one, fandom toxicity. Number two, story group continuity cluster crifts. Three, not liking a lot of the current stories. And four, feeling alone in one's fandom. The confluence of these factors has pushed me to the brink of just giving up on collecting new Star Wars stories. Now, individually, these aren't too much of a problem. After all, I remember the fandom bashing of prequel lovers, or haters, and the nasty arguments back and forth about Karen Travis's material. But now fandom has been infected with politics just like everything else. I can't publicly say that I'm disappointed that they made Afra a lesbian, or maybe bi, or that Aftermath and Last Shot are mainstreaming trans characters without immediately being called a bigot and compared to racists and sexists. Or if I mention that I actually like Ray's character, the immediate response so often is, You like that, Mary Sue? What SJW bullsh... You know what he's going for. The continuity cluster crifts are pretty bad. But I remember the difficulty trying to square Travis's novels with Abel's work, or figuring out who was the bounty hunter on Ord Mantell, or the travesty that was Starwood, or the Clone Wars Wrecking Ball, or... The difference now is that we were told that this was a thing of the past. But if anything, it seems like continuity is even looser now than it was back in the old EU days. And people like Leland and Pablo don't seem to care about this stuff anymore. I recognize that there are a lot of bad stories back in the EU days, so I don't have rose-colored glasses. Holiday special, anyone? Or <sighs> the approaching storm? But those were typically mixed in with a lot of great storytelling from Stover, Lucino, John Jackson Miller, uh, John Ostrander, and Jan Dersima, etc. And we had continuity masterpieces interweaving material from every corner, no matter how obscure, into seamless tapestries of epic lore from Abel, Dan Wallace, Jason Fry, Rich Hanley, etc. Those days are long gone. Now we get one-off books that don't really add to the lore and rarely introduce great new characters, or comics that are literally forgettable, as in, just about every time I read a new issue, I struggle to remember what happened in the last issue. No Zane, Quinlan, or Cade here. The only novels I've actually liked in the Disney canon have been Jason Fry's Rebels series. Dark Disciple was okay, but only okay. I haven't read them all yet, but it's hard to feel motivated to do so when they've all been so inconsequential and bland. I'm told Lost Stars is an exception, but I haven't gotten to that one yet. I've also felt alone in this. I remember the days of the official forums talking with you and other fans about the latest stuff and discussing obscure minutia even with Leland Chi. I'm still proud of the fact that he used one of my questions to him in his column in Insider. Now it's just social media, which is such a harsh forum for discussion. One of the many things I loved about the Star Wars Timeline Gold is that it was a vehicle for discussing a lot of minutia and figuring out how it all fit together. With it ending now, too, I just feel more alone in my fandom than ever, since I don't have anyone offline to discuss this with. So while any one of these things isn't necessarily too bad, when you put them all together, you create a perfect storm where I'm strongly tempted to give up on Disney canon and stick to trying to track down the last few Legends items I don't already have in my collection. Mostly just a few RPG books and super obscure comics from overseas. Luke. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that's, that's been the crux of my issue. Uh, and I'm sure Nate's, you know, that's a big chunk of what's going on with him too. The, the 
feeling that there's a lack of caring on the continuity one really sticks out to me because I, I'm in that same boat with you got all these books out there. You want to read them. And yet the feeling you have when you're done, you're kind of like, it was an okay story. You know, where you're like, I want a good, I want a great story. Like Lost Stars was a great story. I really enjoyed that one, but I want more like that. You know, I mean, the, the feeling like Chi and Pablo aren't caring. Uh, I think about that one a lot because I too remember conversations with them on the forum boards and stuff. And, and like Nate, you know, you were able to email Chi back before the day and stuff. And then as soon as the Disney thing happened, certain curtains came down, you know, like we were no longer able to email Chi. And I, I think that the, the persona of them not caring, I think that that is something they have to do from a business standpoint. I don't think one bit that they just suddenly stopped caring about continuity and things like that. Uh, you know, Leland's got, he, he, I mean, he made the dang data bank. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the man continuity has been his thing. Think about the fact that, you know, now they're, they're towing the line as story group members and we're in an era now where it seems like they don't want the focus to be on continuity because in the past continuity created so many issues. And I think that the Disney stance is, well, we just won't talk about it. We won't focus on it and we'll pull back from it. And then it won't be as much of an issue. And yet there are people like me, you, Luke and Nate that pay more attention to those things. We're like, but there's potential for all these problems down the road. Like, so it looks like they don't care, but I, I think that that really comes down to the business side of things. Like they can't show that they're caring because of their new positions, because then people will pick apart what they say and use it as ammo for their fuel, for their war that is never ending. The forever war, as they go. Um, uh, I do think that – I wouldn't say that Leland and Pablo don't care about it per se – um, as I find it interesting, Leland just recently uh, acknowledged the 20th anniversary that had passed a while back of uh, Star Wars Timeline Gold. Uh, he was asked about you know timelines for uh, canon material, and he pointed to that. Uh, and when finding out that it's ending because of uh, "Hey, we're having a baby," he offered just congratulations. So uh, he is still active on Twitter, just not as much. Uh, and you can sometimes still get answers from people like uh, uh, Matt Martin of the Story Group, though. It tends to be sort of stuff that's, you know, it's nebulous after the fact. It's like, oh, yeah. Because, for instance, um, Han Solo was uh, presumed to be uh, – I'm trying to remember the exact numbers here. But I was if I remember right, it was that Han was uh, originally meant to be uh, night, or no, 29 in A New Hope in Legends. So his birth date was 29 BBY, except when you look at – the new guide for the solo film that came out, it puts his birth date in the same year as basically the Battle of Naboo. So he's three years older in canon than he was in Legends. And that led to questions of, well, wait a second, so is Lando still older? Because originally Lando was older than Han. Um, and that might have an impact on the whole, you know, the adults are talking line in the film. And they were able to clarify, yeah, Lando is still older than Han. Yes, that is Han's new presumed birth date. Uh, but no, we don't have an exact date for Lando's birth. You know, we just assume that he's still older, etc. Uh, so you can get answers like that, but it seems like it's more uh, reactive to some degree, although for a while there in the past it was reactive as well. But it's less, I think to me, it's less about continuity per se, although continuity is running into some issues, and so much more about chronology. You know, the we're not going to pin it down, we're not going to pin it down thing that just begs and begs for more problems as the saga gets bigger. Um, I do agree there's no real tapestries out there yet in terms of something that can pull things together, but 
To be fair, it took years and years and years of stories to be produced in Legends to eventually get the kinds of weaved-woven-together tapestries that we eventually got um, in terms of stories. Uh, guides came a little bit earlier that were able to weave things together because they didn't have to form a coherent story of how they were piecing all these disparate sources together. Um, but something like a legacy needed years and years of storytelling to eventually get there. But will we ever see that? It's hard to say because of how you know, inconsequential most of these stories have been and many of these characters uh, that just kind of disappear. I would say that uh, I would recommend Lost Stars. As he said, Lost Stars also, by the way, now has a manga adaptation that's coming out in parts that finally has been published in the U.S. Uh, in manga paperback form, if you want to check that out. It's actually pretty good. Uh, it is a traditional manga, so you are reading it backwards to Americans' way of looking at books. Um, I do agree Star Wars has been infected with politics like everything else, and that is something that is just sickening, I would say, disgusting about modern culture, that politics is everywhere. You can't escape it, which is kind of ridiculous. Even as someone like me who just really enjoys the the intricacies of politics and the subjects involved in history and economics and that sort of thing to not be able to really have such a thing as an escape anymore from it because it is everywhere infecting everything that is frustrating. I mean it's one thing to be able to pull in context and look for parallels to real life and to use symbolism and use historical uh, precedent as Star Wars did, you know, with the idea of the Nazis as opposed to stormtroopers and so forth. But that's when a choice is made to make that connection as opposed to it just seeping into everything. It's like politics got to a point where it was a vat of hot lava or something and it exploded and now it's just seeping into everything around it. It's no longer contained in its own vessel. Um, so it is creating a perfect storm of a lot of things happening right now that just are pushing people to say, forget it, I'm done, or to say, you know, I'm going to tailor my approach because I'm sick of what I'm seeing. Um, though I will say that I think that it is much healthier as fans to see and recognize the things that are disgusting us or, or dragging us down within fandom to be able to say, I will consciously remove myself from this and try not to be a part of that or feed into that, than to say, I'm going to stick with this and get sucked up in it and let it permeate ourselves. Because that isn't a recipe for health uh, in the future. So... You know, it's just one of these things where we, again, we sort of have to find a way through it. As Dom said, there's not necessarily a solution, but there has to be a way to maintain one's fandom in the face of all of this, or really the choice is to walk away, right? Uh, and that isn't the choice that most are hoping to make. Although, again, I'll tie that into something we'll talk about near the end of the episode here. Well, it's it's all about dialogue. I mean, if, if we don't have this open dialogue about it, then yes, it our our fandom is toxic as hell and no one should be a part of it. But there are people out there that are having this conversation pointing out the fact that it isn't like this everywhere. There are communities and groups of people that are just discussing about characters, story plots, things like that that they love, or even things from the old universe, from legends that they love. There is love here. It's just hard to see it through the murk of the internet. We need some windshield wipers on our fandom. Whether it's rose-colored glasses or not, get the little, like, sunglasses with the windshield wipers on them. All right, this brings us to feedback coming in from David Motters. David says, Blown away. Yes, blown away by episode 234. There's so much I want to say in response to what you guys had to say, but I'll say this first. Congratulations to you, Nate, and your wife on your upcoming baby. That is positive news. That is great news. That is non-toxic news. I wanted to touch base on the toxicity and fandom that you guys covered so eloquently in this episode. 
I have to say it sads me that this episode even had to cover this issue. As both you, Mark, and Nate say, it's great to escape into Star Wars. It's fun. It should be fun. But the toxicity is there. Since 1977, I've been into Star Wars to have fun and really look at morals, values, and family messages that are inherent in the movies. This was not only a Star Wars podcast, but also a psychology podcast. You guys discussed everything in my profession. Depression, anxiety, stress, PTSD, and the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th Edition. I believe you guys discussed these psychological issues because they can occur when fans can't escape into something positive and fun. With the toxicity in fandom so high, some fans have not been able to escape into Star Wars. We then see depression and anxiety in those fans. Mark, your sharing of your dark times in fandom last fall and at other times was truly awesome. Your willingness to talk about depression and thoughts of suicide are critical for others to hear. Nate, your sharing of loneliness while working on the timeline was critical. I really appreciate you guys telling other fans they are not alone. There are more of us positive fans, and you guys being willing to jump in the pit versus looking down from the rim and wishing people well to help other fans is just beyond cool. I've said it before and will again. You guys get it. You are the people I want to be around. You guys are the guys I want to enjoy fandom with and never stop doing what you guys do because it's gold. Your fellow Beyonder in the pit bringing positivity to Star Wars fandom, David Motters. Thanks, Dave. You rock, man. In, in fact, you, you are one of the uh, people that made my celebration trip so much fun. Uh, you, Jim Lehane, uh, Michael Morris, getting to go down to that podcast listener meetup and stuff and, and run into you guys and just, you know, hear your guys' thoughts on fandom and, and podcasting and everything was just was something I really needed at that time. Helped get me remotivated. Uh, you know, it's part of what I've been talking about, the fellowship of fandom. That two hour block did more for me and my fellowship with you guys than being in any of the panels ever did. Um, you know, that, that one-on-one -on -one that we all had was, was just epic. Um, and, and I appreciate the, uh, the thanks on all the sharing that I did. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't like to go down those dark roads, but at the same time, like, I think it is important to realize that sometimes it's, it's not the people that you may think that are really struggling with their own internal darkness. For me, when it came to the legend story, that really fundamentally helped me with my spiritual and religious views. Um, you know, when, when I was really determining whether I wanted to go to this church or that church or no church, uh, when I had, when I'd stepped away from most of the churches, because I found that, that the local churches I was going to were turning me off to organized religion. I was really having an issue with that. I turned to my books and, and the philosophy of the force became kind of my guiding light in helping me dis determine where I really fell in those things. Cause my wife, she's a seventh day Adventist. So, you know, she's got some concrete beliefs on how things are. And, you know, I, I, my dad was Catholic and absolutely hated being raised in that religion. So he was of the opinion of like, I'll let you guys discover whatever religion you want. I'll support whatever you want, but I want you guys to dabble in everything. I don't want you to just jump into one. And so for me, like everything I was learning about the force and, and the light and the dark and the way that the Jedi were perceiving it and stuff, it helped me with my moral compass moving forward and stuff. And that was what really was my jam back in the day was that. And so as star Wars has evolved, like I still love that, but I don't get as much of that as we used to get. And I, that's a really weird place to be sometimes when 
the thing that brought you the most joy isn't what's being provided to you in the context of the material you're absorbing. Um, you know, I was, I was chatting with, uh, David Sendon today and he was talking about how he'd love to see a, a movie with the Mortis people. And I was like, please no. You know, we got into a big old thing about it because like for me, like that was such a, a fundamental part of my fandom. And yet it was always so nebulous that you could take things in, in a, a multitude of directions. I mean, I remember when Vajer came out and there was the no dark side and everyone was like, you know, up in arms over that, you know, and yet you have this where we're at this position now where if you had more to stuff going down, you've got arguments over whether or not there should be Sith ghosts and stuff. Like what if you get somebody in there that, that feels like, yes, we are having Sith ghosts and they went forward with that. And then you have people that are like, no, what are you doing? Like, I don't know. For me, man, I, I go all over the place with so many things. Hence, that's why I call myself the bipolar fan. So yeah, putting that stuff out there, sharing that stuff. It's a little nerve wracking because, you know, I mean, I may put my foot in it big time sometimes, like explaining some of the thought processes I have because I'm constantly evolving as a person and the things that I bring into my house and my life, they affect who I am and the way I think about things as I go forward and stuff. I mean, here we're talking about things from Twitter with Roseanne and stuff, and I'm finding ways to apply it to Star Wars. So, I mean, that's always going on with me. And yet sometimes I think of it as a problem, <laughs> you know, when I'm dwelling on things and I get to a point where I am getting in such a, a low place over Star Wars. And I'm like, is it really that important to me? And yet I... I mean, I named my kids after this stuff. So yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it was that important to me. So hearing your thanks is, is definitely something that helps me, uh, stay sane. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's funny. The first thing that Mark said there about celebration, I was like, is he talking for me? Did I write that? Because, uh, the, the, the experiences of getting to talk and such at celebration, um, and seeing the passion, that's, that's a, a huge, huge thing. Uh, and, and David, for those, uh, he, he, he alludes to it, um, uh, having the psychology background, uh, makes it just some very interesting conversations you can get into about these things that a lot of times, uh, fans tend to gloss over when, they are sort of integral to understanding human nature that are also a part of the Star Wars stories, which makes for some, some, some great conversations. David's always able to kind of, uh, to delve into those things. And I, I am by no means an expert on psychology. Um, but I do find those types of things fascinating in the way that they play into Star Wars and, uh, at both in terms of the characters, but also in terms of sort of the real life aspects of it and trying to understand fellow fans, trying to understand how we're affected by the saga and whatnot. Uh, and I would say when it comes to, you know, looking at it from morals and values, you know, I was someone who grew up as a uh, Protestant Christian. I think Baptist was what we were, but never really sort of bought into anything. It was just, you know, that was the thing you did on Sundays. And, and, and about halfway in, you started writing on the little program for the day, a message to mom saying, you know, where can we go for lunch? Because that was the day we'd go to get fast food. And it was always about McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King or where is it going to be? I'm not taking any of the message. I'm just waiting for the food. And that was basically about it. It never really sunk in. You know, uh, I went to, um, I don't know what they call them, like Bible camp, kind of thing, like a summer Bible thing where like you would go and be at a camp for like a week um, and get to like hang out with others and you would just do all kinds of activities, but also learn uh, biblical stuff and whatnot. Uh, I would always win the trivia contests, but not because of faith, but because I had a good mind for trivia, right? Uh, for facts. And to me, what really sort of got me turning towards there's a couple things that got me turning from a, towards a religious standpoint. The biggest being seeing uh, the the change that over that that tended to come over my father as he became more 
connected to his personal faith. And because he was someone with a, with a sharp ten- temper early on, someone that for a long time I tried not to be like and became someone who I tried to emulate. Um, someone who, who just is one of the more uh, generous, open-minded, uh, and, and sort of service-oriented people that I know. Um, but a lot of that came with that change, which happened shortly before kind of I myself started going through a similar, uh, sort of trying to find things. But in a lot of ways, what defined me early on, even before I had sort of a religious background, and, and I wound up being Protestant Christian, I kind of find my, found my way back to the same thing, but on my own terms, in essence, um, but even in the gap where it wasn't something that I could have put a name to, the ideas of Star Wars and light and dark and trying to do the right thing and standing up for what is right even when outnumbered, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the ethics that it sort of drives you toward in trying to be an ethical person, however it's defined by the story, by society, by yourself, um, that was always a big part of what Star Wars was to me. That's part of why I think it, it ingrained itself in me so much. I think it may be why so many people are so upset in seeing Star Wars turn away from what they they hoped or expected it to be, um, which we'll get into later. Um, so definitely keep listening, because I think as we get towards the end of the episode, if I can share some of those thoughts that I had earlier, um, that, that that definitely leans toward the psychology side. But for me, I think it's just only natural for us to share what we go through and kind of being open with that. I'm always kind of an oversharer anyway. I've kind of always been that way. Um, a TMI kind of guy. But I think that, to me, it comes back to this idea of if we can sort of share those experiences and we can put it within a context of sort of a shared experience with other fans and the idea that, you know, you're not alone and so forth, to some degree, it's a a form of service, I guess. And the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I realize that I think I'm kind of a service-oriented person, Um, like teaching um, the Star Wars timeline gold, essentially as an educational service for fans. Um, the way that I have approached podcasting over the years or the YouTube videos and stuff that it's teaching and sort of uh, serving or providing something to others, um, as, as a benefit to try to make things better as a community for all of us and share knowledge and whatnot has always just sort of been a thing. So maybe, maybe the, the more surprising thing would have been for me not to share some of those thoughts. Um, because that's sort of, sort of, sort of the, the way that I lean, but I know that it's not necessarily comfortable territory for everybody. It'd be nice if it was, but I guess, um, I guess it's, it's nice to be an exception, I suppose. You know, I, I just can't wait for when Cade gets first grade and I can push you into Cub Scouting. I think you are going to get the hell out of that program. You're going to get, get the hell out of the program. You're going to get a lot out of that program. I love Everything that I do with my son in that, in fact, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend, we're going camping to be inducted in the Order of the Arrow, which is a service order within scouting. Um, it was odd because I had to pay money to volunteer my time. <laughs> now, you you guys don't do the popcorn anymore, right? They do do popcorn. Yeah, the popcorn oh, man. still happen. Yeah. I just have to make sure that if I get him into that, he never winds up having to watch the promotional video for Trails In that... I starred in years ago when I, my one professional acting job, my God, it is horrible. But thankfully um, it was SD and like we're in the age of S of uh, HD. So maybe they'll be like, no, that was just God awful back then. <laughs> but I'm sure that at some point my wife will be like, Hey, look what daddy did. You're like, Thanks honey. And, and I've got all the PDFs and stuff. So if you want to form your own rebel patrol, I can send you all the stuff. There you go. <laughs> All right, we have another here coming in from Eric Marshall. Uh, subject line, well, voila, 
Remember, that is traitor to my people, which is the phrasing used within the Expanse series, which, by the way, after being canceled by Sci-Fi at the end of this season, has already been picked up for a new season on Amazon. So if this season ends where I think it's going to end at the end of the second book, it's not going to leave people with one of the biggest cliffhangers in Sci-Fi history. Um, how's that for some hype, if, if that's the case? Um, all right. So uh, Eric says, I just finished up listening to your latest episode and felt the urge to write in. My fandom has always been pretty solitary, never really having anyone close to talk to about Star Wars, but found the internet as a place to express myself. However, over the last few years, I've had to move away from this form of fandom. It's become not much fun for me to be a part of it. In fact, I've had to take multiple breaks from Star Wars because of the horrible way some fans treat other fans, as you both discussed. I was actually told that I wasn't a true fan of Star Wars because I enjoy the new Disney movies as much as the Lucas movies. I was also told that I wasn't a true fan because I took breaks from Star Wars to not get burned out. That was when I decided to take Nathan's advice, and if I'm stressing about my fandom, I'm doing it wrong. Cut off ties to all those internet sites and Facebook pages I didn't feel comfortable with. However, my story doesn't end there, and I've mentioned this to Nathan before, but beyond the films and other Star Wars Report podcasts and their community, helped me out when I was at the lowest point of my life, the most depressed I ever was. So thank you all for being someplace that doesn't treat other fans horribly and not letting people be treated horribly. We all can have different opinions on the movies, the books, the games, etc. But doing it in a civilized manner and being able to discuss why you feel the way you do is how I enjoy my fandom. I truly hope that someday fandom isn't as toxic, but that day may be a long way off. But I personally am always willing to talk about my fandom to anyone, always willing to listen, and will never be toxic with anyone on their opinion as long as they aren't toxic to me. This podcast really hit home, especially with Mark talking about how depressed he's been with fandom. I feel you, Mark. I have so much more that I could say about my fandom, about how I feel about the current state of fandom, but you both did such a great job of talking about it, I don't want to restate what you already said, and also don't want my feedback to bore anyone. But thank you for listening to my story. You can expect more feedback from me in the future when topics pop up that aren't book reviews, as I have a hard time keeping up with the books with a two-year-old. Take care, Eric Marshall. Man, thanks, Eric. You know, I... I love the fact that, that our second airborne podcast division, all the different shows on there were a refuge for you. Like that's, that's awesome. I think that is to a degree one of the things that we try to be. We try to, you know, aim for family friendly. Granted, I think, I think you and me, Nate, I think our show is probably one of the more adult aimed in that family oriented group. Like, you know, I, I, when I'm editing things, I leave certain swear words half in because it's kind of like, well, that's part of the funny was the way he dropped that bomb. Uh, but when, when you talk about cutting yourself off, uh, I, you know, it hurts to have to do that. I think when I do that, I feel like I am betraying my other fans, uh, you know, cause I join these, these groups with like, you know, starts out with like a couple hundred people and the next thing you know, there's 25,000 people in there. And I found that that seems to be about the magic number. Once you hit 20,000, that's when you really start getting people that are, are the behind the wall trolls. You know, you don't know they're there until they're just lashing out and throwing the little trollish comments because they're just trying to get a barb kind of thing. And I, I did the same thing. I started cutting myself out of those groups and pulling myself out, but I was conflicted with the feeling like I was betraying my fellow fans. Like, like, you know, like not just I'm a fan, but I'm also, I do podcasts and stuff. So like, you know, not, not that I'm an authority on anything, but my being there felt like, like, I don't know, like I, I was a representation of 
the Star Wars report. And by pulling myself out, it's like I'm not condoning everything that's going on here. And, you know, am I putting out that kind of statement? So I start to overthink things a lot. So that aspect of cutting yourself off for me, sometimes even just by cutting myself away and, and pulling it back, I stop doing that, that cyclical thinking that I do because sometimes I just get caught up in my head. Um, you know, when I was younger, I, I really believed that life was about circles and, and, didn't matter if it was thoughts or actions or karma. Everything comes back around and you find yourself kind of where you were at. And for me, it's getting lost in my own mind. Um, you know, I, I start to overanalyze things and interactions that I have with people and comments and stuff. And then when I find myself on that opposite side or, or where the Caroline comes in, you know, where I'm playing devil's advocate and yet – I'm now in the conversation deep enough that it looks for all intents and purposes that I'm a dyed in the wool. I'm on that side fan and I'm not, I'm just out there trying to process how those type of people think by getting in their shoes. And then now I realize, well, now I've put myself out there where I look like I'm the D bag. And you know, then, then you get that aspect where people are calling each other true fans and stuff. And I, I hate that, you know, that, that true fan thing just, I don't know, man, that one gets under my, under my skin in a way that, that really angers me because usually it's used in the most dismissive of ways. And to me, when I think a true fan, it, it, it's, it's a sharing of love. I mean, if you're a true fan of something, you love something, you know, whether, whether some people love to hate on it, you know, that, and, and I, I recognize that there are those people out there as much as, as, a, as that could be a thorn in other people's side. But, you know, the, the thing about the golden rule is you want everyone to treat you like the way you're being treated. That works great until you run across a family that loves to slap box. Because now you're getting slapped because they want to, they want to slap box, but you're a person that you don't like to dip physically violent. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's that cutting yourself off. You got to know when to do it, how to do it. And, and you've definitely done it right. Nathan's aspect of, you know, if it's not bringing you fan fun, if it's not bringing you joy, that's the time to bail out. Absolutely. And cutting yourself off, it's hard, but it is probably the better way to go about saving yourself and saving your fandom. Because if you lose your fandom, you lose yourself. And that's something that I definitely felt the last year. Yeah, I feel you on the whole idea of sort of not legitimizing things by being present and the need to sort of step away if not condoning. I think that that's something that that can be a tricky thing, right? I mean, we're, we're regular old fans like anybody else. Um, you know, I've had some great opportunities uh, from an official standpoint, but it's still just a fan like everybody else. Um, and uh, as I guess you grow an audience, there's sort of an expectation that what you do sort of reflects upon something broader than yourself, which is really not really supposed to happen, right? Uh, I guess that's the same reason why, you know, the same, you know, we would have to be necessarily careful, you know, of, of you know, you don't want to legitimize a group by being a part of it for a while. Uh, and maybe you leaving might be a signal to others that, well, you know, maybe this isn't the place to be. But to some degree, that's almost anathema to me because it sort of feels like it leans into the same thing as why we care about the political opinions of Kanye West. You know, <laughs> like, no, you know, regular folks. Um, I will say that uh, one way that I've heard the sort of idea of getting caught in your own head described before, uh, and, I f- and I found it a very fitting description um, cause for me, it's not so much depression. Sometimes it's the, it's the anxiety angle that gets me. I, I sometimes think that I have an undiagnosed case of generalized anxiety disorder that will hit me from time to time, but I take so many medicines already for my IBS and, and migraine prevention and other things that I don't want to be prescribed anything new. So it's just kind of a, you know, finding coping mechanisms to deal with it whenever I start feeling that way. But, uh, I had a friend describe it to me at one point as mental NASCAR, that in essence, you're going around in circles until you crash into something. 
with that being with that crash into something being the, you know the race is over where you crash into something that that's sort of the um kind of the the bit that he sort of added into it that had me thinking you know it's definitely something to be careful of i do think that sort of removing from groups is something that can be mentally healthy i mean like i said i don't really post too much on the Facebook page for Star Wars Beyond the Films, even. Because we still sometimes have people coming in, they're kind of pushing misinformation, or they're being intellectually dishonest, and I could spend all day arguing with them and get nowhere because it's like arguing with a brick wall because I'm not going to budge on my position when it's factual. They're not going to budge on their position because they're locked into it, even if the facts are contrary to it. And it just drives me nuts. It drives me up the wall. But I will say, to the credit of the folks posting on the the Facebook page. There was a conversation recently. uh, It was like a post about Solo. I think it was when Mark posted the picture of the Lando quote about, you know, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. And it got to a point where somebody made the concern, I guess voiced a concern that basically their view was Lucasfilm doesn't want to cast and quote unquote hates white people. And I'm sitting there like, the hell was that? But I don't step because I'm not part of the conversation. And there's a debate going back and forth between this person and others. And it gets somewhat heated, but it continues to be sort of an ongoing thing. There's sort of an answer. You know, really, if you if if your answer to that is, well, yes, they do. Therefore, uh, you look it up and do your homework. Then, well, you're making. Oh, no, their their answer was was go to Google. <laughs> so for a while there, they weren't providing proof of these claims about how Kathleen Kennedy has this anti-white male agenda and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, but finally, the person posted what they put out as, you know, here's your proof. But the proof was basically a video made by someone that would be not just considered maybe an alt-legend type person, but an alt-right person going after Disney, which was kind of beyond the pale to a degree. Which had me finally step and say, you know what? Okay, we finally got to the point where this has gone from being an ongoing debate over a serious issue to people posting what amounts to an alt-right kind of thing, and that's not going to fly here, right? Because this was a video that was pretty heavy on the racial invective and so forth. Like, that's not going to fly. So, the uh, this was a thread that had a lot of different sort of branches of people talking. You know what? Continue discussing, if you like, within the other branches of this. Continue discussing the posts that Mark originally made. But when it comes to this specific aspect, this is a conversation to take somewhere else. And I won't say it again. You know, I actually busted out the, if I need to use the delete or the ban hammer, I will. But this aspect, we're not going into racial invective on this page. This stops now. And to its credit, it stopped dead. I expected to see somebody come back with a, a yeah, but, or like a, a, oh yeah, kind of thing. Or some type of, of belligerent response. It stopped dead in its tracks and the, and the conversation continued in all the other branches. So even when that community sometimes can delve into some areas where you see something that kind of starts to go off the rails. I think that there's at least a level of, if not decorum, then forced decorum that still exists um, that kind of was, was heartening the other day to see something that felt like it was about to delve way down into toxicity that wound up essentially catching itself before it it splashed into those waters was kind of surprising. Uh, and I guess last thing before we move on to the next email that I would mention is on the whole true fan thing. I think what I'm finding is that again, no one should be, you can't really be the gatekeeper or the authority on what a true fan is. Um, we can talk about people who are toxic fans who are rational or irrational fans. Um, but it has to be based on those specific criteria, right? 
Um, but what I find interesting is that I think that a lot of times when the true fan kind of comment comes up now, it's not so much about real fan or not. I almost feel like it would be better described what people are trying to say oftentimes. And the distinction they're trying to draw isn't about where you're, you've never been a fan. It's a distinction between being a fan of what Star Wars is versus being a fan of what Star Wars was. Because over time, Star Wars evolves. And I think you see this multiple times because you look at it right now, and it's the clash between those who are hanging on to the idea that what Star Wars should be is what it was prior to 2014, prior to the announcement in August or uh, April of 2014. And then that what it is now, the canon stuff, is not what it should be. Versus those people who are fans of what Star Wars is in its full breadth and scope, Disney stuff, and the stuff that came before. I don't see a lot of just Disney complete non-legends, except when it's backlash against uh, the the complaints. But I think there's probably that, that contingent out there as well. But sort of this, what Star Wars is versus what it was being a defining factor. But I think you see that also when you look at whether it's the Clone Wars or especially the prequels, right? A lot of the prequel hate backlash and a lot of the prequel lover, prequel hater division is in a lot of ways the idea of what Star Wars was prior to 1999 versus what Star Wars is in 99, 2005 and onward and so on with what Star Wars had changed into and, and the the evolution it went into, into as we saw the prequels being added into the mix. Um that it's possible to be a fan of something, but to be a fan of what it was and not what it is. But that is a different type of fan than someone who is a fan of what it is. And that that's where a lot of the, the clashes are happening, but it's never given that type of, of distinction. It's generally just Star Wars fan or not. And if you're not my type, you aren't a true fan because I'm a fan of you know one of those two, what was or what is. And that's not... Again, if we can't draw the distinction, it's not going to be healthy, as in anything, right? If you can't draw distinctions uh, rationally, it's not going to be healthy. Well, I think it comes down to the word. You know, I mean, this this one comes up to me a lot. The word funk. The original definition for funk was a paralyzing fear. But that's not what we think of when you hear the word funky now, right? And we use the word fan a lot, but fan is just short for fanatic. And if you stop and think about that, are you really fanatic for Star Wars? Do you get fanatical for legends? Do you get fanatical for the books? Do you get fanatical for the comics? There's a lot of those that I would actually answer yes. If you look in my garage, I'm a fanatic for a lot of this stuff. And I think, you know, we use the term fan with sports and stuff so often that when we see a true fanatic, we're like, oh, they have a problem. But we, we've overlooked the fact that the word fan is short for fanatic. And most people just casually call themselves fans when they're not really fanatic for it. Like I am not an actual sports fanatic. I mean, I like the ducks, the college football team. I don't have really any, you know, horse in the race for NFL or anything like that. So I'm not really a true fan of sports because I'm not fanatical for it. My dad though, my dad's a dyed in the wool fanatical duck fan. That's, that's his thing. My friend, Brian, that's uh, the other scout master for one of the other troops. He was my cub scout master. He's, 
a, an Oregon Duck fanatic. I mean, you know, I am definitely a Star Wars fanatic. You know, you, you go to my work, you get a printout ticket from when I sell you a sub. It's going to tell you you're, you were served by the Jedi and, and the other employees are like, how did you do that? Like, I'm a fanatic. This is what I, this is, I'm a fan for this crap. So I think that sometimes that's a big part of this is that people forget the true root of that word. And my concern, I guess, would be the flip side to that, which is the that we we almost think that if you can't be a fanatic, if you haven't reached that point, you can't be considered a fan at all in the modern colloquial way of saying it. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of fans – and it's, and it's funny. You talk about the idea of fanatic. It, it brought up a term that we think of in terms of modern terrorism and such. But I think that it's a perfect example of the way that sides get developed – online over things like uh, loving or hating The Last Jedi or loving or hating Disney and so forth and the, the the battle lines being drawn and people being pulled further and further apart. And it's the idea that the internet and the echo chamber and the the irrational hate a lot of times that's, that is spewed out there by, by any given side on a particular issue within fandom, outside of fandom, etc., then in essence, we are becoming fans oftentimes – by accident, that becomes self-radicalized. We are self-radicalized fandom. We are fans who are not willing to simply be regular old fans. We have to push towards the fanatical territory, and it is the internet allowing us to essentially do that to ourselves, right? To to build ourselves up in our anger and our frustration over something by reading a bunch of stuff online and seeing a bunch of retweets and, oh, this and, oh, that, oh, look at that petition, and boom, all of a sudden... We find ourselves on one side or another of an issue fully polarized without ever having realized we were turning in a direction at all. We thought we were in the middle just being a normal fan, and instead we've made the journey down the rabbit hole without realizing it. Um, I think that's sort of a, a dangerous thing, but one of the hardest things to recognize, uh, they'll tell you, the, the psychologists who have studied the idea, for instance, terrorism, will say that you know when someone is becoming self-radicalized, it's almost impossible to recognize that self-radicalization because instead it's seen as more of like, my view is becoming clearer. I'm understanding better. I see the world for what it is and you all don't. And it just goes on from there. The next one comes from Scott Johnson. And Scott says, wow, what an amazing episode, guys. Super powerful. First off, I want to thank you for this podcast. Although I don't write in regularly, I really enjoy each episode, and the show really is an important part of my enjoyment of Star Wars overall. Listening to your discussions has been great all these years and helped me out of some tough personal times back in 2011. To address some of Mark's concerns about being an EU-only fan or a hardcore EU guy, I personally embrace it. I don't think it's an issue if you decide not to follow the new canon. I personally have decided that the book and comics now are just no longer worth it. They don't drive to expand the universe like the EU of old. Now, the movies are the driving force expanding the universe. I don't think you're missing anything by not reading the new books and comics. The new material, to me, is just not worth the time and money investment. So instead, I'm focusing on rereading and enjoying the old EU I have and trying to track down the rarer items I'm still missing. I watch slash listen to the reviews and the information I get through the grapevine about new material, but I don't buy it anymore, and I'm not ashamed about it. I'm still active in a few fan groups, and it's not a problem. I even see Mark post from time to time, and I think he's way too hard on himself on worrying how he thinks he comes across. He's super fan-friendly and open to all angles. I think a lot of the frustration in the fan community and political discord in our country, and around the world, isn't really about fandom or about legitimate political differences. 
and said, I think most of it really stems from people struggling more and more economically. Mark hit it on the head when he mentioned most people are just trying to get by. I think when getting by becomes more difficult, as I see it now, it becomes the root cause of tensions rising, straining relationships, and civil behavior going out the window. As matters become worse, certain constants and comforts in people's lives, like fandom or Star Wars, undergo changes. I certainly can understand the reactions I see when you consider the circumstances. Instead of villainizing, I think a little more consideration can go a long way in mending bonds and easing difficult changes and situations. We are, in the end, in this together, and on the same side as fans and human beings. Thank you both for this show and your service to fandom. Scott Johnson. Well, thanks for the feedback, Scott. You know, I, I yeah, I'm a hardcore EU fan in a non-EU world, and it does uh, it, it does get easy to come down on myself and be hard on myself. Not sure why. I kind of think I blame my mama for that. Uh, and the getting by angle, I mean, it seems like when it gets hard for people, civil decorum drops away. Um, I think that that's a big chunk of what's going on with a lot of people is that so many people are struggling right now, you know, and, and everybody's so prideful. Nobody wants to admit that we aren't in a perfect place or in a perfect world. Um, so that's definitely something I think, you know, applies to a lot of what's going on with a lot of people that nobody wants to put that forward. So when they get to that point, you know, they're, they're not really ready to let down that guard yet and be open. And I think that's the, that's the key aspect of the fellowship of fandom is that openness. You know, I've got uh, a friend from the 501st. He came to my son's birthday parties and stuff. A really great chap, Martin. He absolutely hated the new solo movie. And I, I wasn't quick to dismiss what he had to say because I know Martin and I know how much Martin loves Star Wars. And yet some of the things he was saying was stuff that I would have dismissed any other person as just being like, Oh, they just hate it. But I knew that this guy really dug, you know, the source material. And there was something about this film that he didn't really care for. So I was really more into listening and trying to understand what put him where he was at because I knew him more than just, he was just a name on an internet board. And I think sometimes that, that that's also part of it that we got to remember too, that, you know, it isn't just a name of some random internet troll. You know, this, this is like a father of three or a mother of two. And, you know, they're enjoying their time at the internet while their, you know, kids are taking their nap or whatever. And, you know, they're interacting in the only way they know how. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we aren't raised in a way that <laughs> is conducive for good conversation. I know some people that just can't have a conversation because they're always right all the time. Even when they're wrong, they're right. And you don't like having conversations with those type of people. So sometimes it's, it's a matter of being more open to get past that with people. And for me, sometimes I've got to pretend like, you know, I know this person more or feel like I need to feel invested in wanting to know more. Cause I think when you're able to just dismiss and turn your back on somebody real quick, it becomes easy just to lock yourself in your own little world and consider yourself right. And when you do that, when you're in the wrong, that creates an environment for others to come in to have these conversations where, where, you know, me and Nate are always talking about, you have to be intellectually honest. And if you're locked away and you're being intellectually dishonest and you don't recognize it for what it is, you're going to run into everybody and constantly be having all these bad interactions with other fans, getting angry, getting mad. And it starts to affect how you react with them. 
and then it starts to affect how they see you as well. I mean, and so I guess for me, that's where I get hard on myself because I don't want to be misunderstood. And it happens a lot, especially as an EU fan. Uh, you know, like I, I love Michael Morris, but there have been times where I've had to explain to Michael, like, yeah, I, I recognize that Legends had some negativity. I do talk about it all sunshine and sparkles, but there were some negative things and things that happened in the story that even I didn't care for. I mean, I didn't like Jason Solo's Fall of the Dark Side. Nate, that was, that was your jam. My jam was before that when I felt like he was going to become some rogue Jedi and, and really awesome. But then we got halfway into Dark Nest and I realized Denning didn't get that memo and Denning was doing something else. And so that's where a lot of my worries with the new canon stuff come in and stuff. It's like, you know, everybody interprets these things different ways. And what if it's fundamentally a different way than what you were hoping for? So when that happens to you, if the people around you are unwilling to accept what you thought may have been or, or where you're at mentally to help you get off of that ledge, you're going to be stuck on that little yellow bench, hoping someone's going to come and play with you forever. Yeah, I think a couple things that stand out to me, uh, just kind of as I'm thinking about what he said there, one is this idea of sort of fandom shaming, I guess that we need to be careful that when it comes to fandom shaming, that is not to say there are, there are plenty of things within fandom that can happen, that can be done, that can be said that absolutely should be shamed, right? That the fandom should not simply accept. Um, it, particularly when it comes to going after other fans, attacking others, or or threats to others Actresses, and stuff like that. Actors, yeah. yeah. But there is a tendency of sort of a, again, sort of you don't view things my way and therefore I will shame you. That shaming is sort of a tactic of self-elevation. You shame others, so by definition, if they drop further, even if you haven't lifted yourself up, the gap between you is now larger. You are now higher above them than you were before. Um, and there's a, to a degree, there is a shaming that gets done of, you know, well, you're not the type of fan I am. My type is superior. When again, that's not really sort of the nature. That's, that's not as a, as to use one of the phrases that David used earlier that I tend to, to like to go back to, um, in my, some of my own ways of looking at things. Um, that is a subjective thing. It is not an objective thing. There is no objective which version of fan is more of a true fan than another. Um, it's more of a, you know, good behavior, bad behavior type of thing. Um, and are you a fan of what is or what was? You know, there are lots of distinctions that can be drawn, but I'm not sure if good or bad, unless we're talking about going after others and something like that is something that should be an issue. And that's where you get the shaming thing coming in sometimes uh, without cause. I would also say, though, that a big part of it, and you sort of alluded to this a little bit in about, you know, being taken the wrong way, is this idea that we have to be be very careful of ascribing motives to people. Just because something somebody says something that could come from a certain motivation doesn't necessarily mean that it did. And you got extreme examples of this, like, you know, people who are criticizing, uh, you know, the aftermath and could be quickly, well, you're a homophobe or whatever. That's kind of an extreme example, but or a social justice warrior, or a snowflake. Yeah. Or, you know, anything like that, you know, we're going to find some thing to ascribe a motive, but I mean, that comes down even to everyday interactions with people, right? Um, the fact, like, and I, and I try to say this with my, see this with my students in particular, right? Um, my students, I, I interact with online. Sometimes I meet them in person at their schools. Sometimes I talk to them by phone. Um, but generally it is an arm's length or a, an even further distance conversation that's going on with them. And it's easy to say, oh, well, this kid hasn't been working on their assignments. This kid hasn't been turning their stuff in or answering emails. 
this kid is just slacking off or whatever. Uh, and stuff like that, to sort of the ascribe a reason for the behavior based on maybe common experience, but not necessarily facts about that particular situation. And we have to be very careful not to do that because a lot of times it turns out, especially with me teaching online now, which where we serve a much more diverse students in a much more diverse set of circumstances, it could very well be, you know, this student isn't doing their work because they've been homeless for the last month. And they plan to get back to it later, but right now that is the focus. And when we know that, it's an immediate, you know, what is in the best interest of the student? You know, if, if it's an illness, get healthy, then we'll worry about the class stuff. Then we'll worry about what to do then. We will find a way. But a lot of times, if you don't, if either you don't know the circumstances somebody is in, the mindset they're, that they're in, or you're not willing to at least open your mind to the idea that the assumption you might make about their circumstances may not be right. Then a lot of times we ascribe motives to people. We ascribe uh, rationales for things that are happening that aren't necessarily true. And you see that within fandom a lot where I think in sort of an ill will is assumed whenever there are uh, disagreements, right? Jump into a conversation and I try to, you know, if, if I'm talking about say, The Last Jedi. I enjoy having conversations with people who dislike The Last Jedi. I really like the film. It's now my favorite Star Wars film, but I enjoy having conversations with those who disliked it if we can have a rational conversation about it because it's interesting to hear the other perspectives. But, but I'm also the guy that, you know, about 10 minutes before we sat down to record, my doorbell rang, and it was the Jehovah's Witness who comes by. And we have talked about every week or two for months now. And he and I do not have the same religious views. But it's interesting to talk about the differences in the theology between my views and his and where they come from and such. And it's just a fascinating conversation to have. It's an intellectually stimulating conversation to have. And neither of us ascribes a motive to the other in the conversation. Just like in, in talking about The Last Jedi, I'm not planning on ascribing a motive so, you know, oh, well, this person is trying to convince me that I'm wrong or this person, uh, hates such and such because they hate The Last Jedi or whatever. Um, but it takes almost a conscious choice to keep an open mind, you know? And I think that's the hardest part for people to recognize a lot of times is that we tend to – everybody wants to think of themselves as open-minded. You don't ask somebody, are you closed-minded or open-minded, and have them just say, closed, I'm setting my ways, screw off. But a lot of times it takes an intentional choice to be open-minded, to be able to not assume a motive of the person you're speaking to and actually listen and have that two-way conversation that I, I, it's almost a lost art in a lot of ways now. Or we're just so caught up in again getting by or getting through the day or whatever we're, we've got going on in our own heads that we don't take the time to even consider that because it's a lot easier and faster just to assume a motive on somebody and go with that because that sort of makes everybody sort of fit a framework, fit a model of how you should respond to them because it's a type of person you're responding to, not an individual, a type. And that's, again, going back to this idea that, you know, what makes healthy conversation, a lot of times that's not going to do so. It's not going to make a healthy conversation um, to ascribe motives unless you happen to, by accident, by sheer luck, be right and, you know, never tell us the odds of that. Yeah, I'd get into political arguments unintentionally because that's usually something I avoid. And a friend of mine that's Republican would be like, oh, you're a Democrat. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm neither of these dang things. Will you stop applying yes. that to me? Yes. <laughs> and I, and that would used to be the most fun thing. When I would, t would teach a face-to-face -face class where a lot of the content was delivered by me and not by the system the way that it's set up for the online class. I mean, I would always 
challenge the students, you know, by the end, because I taught history, politics, and all that kind of stuff. Very controversial subject, a lot of different perspectives. And the curriculum would hit a lot of different views from different sides of things, particularly world history would hit the religious beliefs of a lot of different religious groups uh, that are very diverse in, in their perspectives on, you know, the universe as a whole. And I would challenge them. At the end of the year, I would argue you will not be able to tell me what my political side is or what my political views are. And I would bet you that you are not going to be able to tell me what religion I am. Because if I'm doing my job right, I'm not steering you in my direction. I'm getting you to think, getting you to think critically about things and giving you the information about the context of the world in which we live in to help you make your own decisions and make your own life and and interact with people in an honest way when they may have different perspectives than you do. But I'm not here to proselytize to you. I... if I'm in there doing that, that's that's the closest thing to indoctrination and brainwashing to me, and that is not what education to me is for. That if we're there to just just drill you on facts that you could look up, that's not it. But also, we're not there to sort of mold you into something or indoctrinate you into something. If I can get you to think critically and know how to pull information together, make rational decisions that's the best for you, your community, your life, etc., then I've done my job, even if you don't remember what the Battle of Tours was. You're dead right. That is a lost art. I mean, everybody's into winning. So, you know, for me, your representation there of how you teach reminds me of when we were in Cub Scouting right before we bridged into another troop. Okay. One of the things they have the leaders do is take your boys and go to a couple different troops, not just the one that, you know, you've had your heart set on kind of thing. Our pack was pack 23 and we always just assumed well, pack 23 is going to become troop 23 because there's a troop 23 out there and they do generally feed like that. But my boys ended up going into troop 122 because I offered them options. I wanted them to pick one that worked best for them. So they went to all these other ones and they went with 122, which wasn't what I was anticipating. I was anticipating them staying in 23. So I had to tell Brian, you know, like, hey, I know we said 23 for life and all, but my boys decided to join 122. And you know, that's the nature of that program. But then the next year, the leaders that were in Pac-23 didn't give their Weeblos an option. They all went into 23. It was bam, they're done because that leader went into Troop 23. So she was just like, well, I'm going to make sure we get all six of these next kids. So she went out of her way to do that. She did, she cut out their options and gave them nothing but one option to go with. And that's the way they went. And it's that aspect of had they been doing the program, the way the program was designed, you know, that lost art is what ends up happening. To, you know, people want to win. And that aspect of turning people to your way becomes the constant of today. And the the giving the people the options to learn for themselves and to make decisions for themselves, it's it's dying, man. It is really dying. People are being deceitful in the way they're teaching people. And it's just slowly getting smaller. And the amount of people out there that know the lost ways are getting less and less and less. I mean, honestly, today I don't fish. I don't hunt. I go to Burger King. I can't even freaking farm. I don't water plants enough. I would be screwed. And yet I'm, I'm a big scouter. I'm doing all this scout stuff. I could go out in the week and I could survive all that stuff. But if it came down to hunting and that kind of stuff, that's a lost art that my dad can do that my dad never made sure to train me and teach me to do. So I am like, <laughs> Sorry, son. I know we could go fishing, but I really don't know how. I have no desire. I don't like fish. And, you know, eventually these things become lost along the way. And 
that's a huge one right there. You know, everybody wants to push people into the direction that they feel that they need to go and they're not giving the next generation the options to decide for themselves or the tools to learn how to decide for themselves. As we said last time, the quote from, I guess it was American president, uh, uh, it's, it's a question of fighting the battles that need fighting, not just fighting the battles that you can win. This brings us to feedback from Jameson Glass. Uh, Jamie Glass, and may I say that if you hear thunder, it's not because we're trying to be, you know, setting sort of a, a dismal mood for the next couple, but it has just started storming here in the background at the Butler household here. Uh, Mark's like, I'm halfway across the country. Hell, you're all the way across the country. What am I talking yeah. about? You don't have the storms. Um, all right, right, so coming in uh, from Jamie Glass, we have, hey, Mark and Nathan, whoa, that was some serious mood awesome. thunder right there. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I love a good thunderstorm. My wife, you know, she she hates it, but yeah, that was awesome. Wow, I almost felt that right in my chest. On cue, um, <laughs> I was trying to get, "Hey, Mark and Nathan." Okay, no thunder. Uh, this is a quick one. He says. Been listening to your most recent episode and got to the point where you're talking about voting with your money. You mentioned that because one doesn't agree with the decision, in this case the Disney buyout and story group canon, that individual doesn't buy anything that stems from that decision to show their disagreement with it. You talk about how because they're not buying any of the new stuff or going to see the movies, they can't evidence why they don't agree with the decision that they're protesting, or as the case usually is in how the new stuff sucks. I would like to present a solution. Make use of your local library. I own relatively few Star Wars material, all of it Legends. I prefer Legends as a whole, and I'm more invested in it. However, I've been reading most of the new canon novels and comics through the copies owned by my local library system. I understand that my library system may be one of the better ones, because of feedback I've provided in the past. However, if someone wants to get a feel for the new canon and either can't afford to buy the stuff in general because of the economy, or refuses to buy it because they don't agree with the decisions of the higher-ups, then the local library may be for them. As always, keep up the good work. Jamie. Dude, that is brilliant. No, that that is smarter than smart because so many people forget about their libraries. I mean, my city, our library has almost died three times. It actually did die for a five-year period. It was just the building was there. All the books were in it. And they were like, we got to get the library going again. Uh, but they finally got it going again. And I was blown away just by the amount of Legends books they had back when I went there. Uh and, and yeah, I mean, you can go down, you can request them to get books. So that's, yeah, that's a brilliant angle right there. Total solution. Hey, Beyonders, we actually have a solution here. I, I know we've had a lot of topics here that we have no solutions for, but we got one. Thank you, Jameson. I, I'm, that's, yeah, I'm going to have to put some word in at my library. I'm not even sure how our library system works down here. Uh, I used to be a, a prolific visitor to the library system back in my hometown of Evansville, Indiana, but down here, I know that that I voted in local libraries, but I don't know that I've actually taken the time to really peruse much. But it's not a very robust system, it looks like, down here. But that may be that it's because the Atlanta metro area is so big that it is so dispersed that no one branch, unless you're really in like downtown Atlanta or something, is really going to be all that large. Uh, and maybe it's just the system sending stuff back and forth that really gives it its oomph. Uh, I would say, though, that I would argue that someone who is not going to partake of a new story and will not vote with their money, essentially, for it by not buying it. Uh, wow, that was a really convoluted sentence. Someone who doesn't want to support the new stuff, and therefore will not buy it, so they're voting with their dollars, so to speak, or walking away with them, in a lot of cases, I think, will also be choosing not to partake of the subject at all. I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily, well, I'm not going to buy it, and therefore I'm not going to read it. I think it's a, I'm not doing either of them. 
So I'm not sure how much that would wind up being a solution for those. But certainly it'd be nice if people who are criticizing things would definitely take the time to actually read. Like, as we said in the opening crawl, the joke of the opening crawl, um, there is some truth to the fact that a lot of the people criticizing a lot of these newer things haven't bothered to partake of it. Um, I've had instances where, I mean, there was, we, so I put up my, my review of Solo, my non-spoiler review, and then my spoiler review of Solo for my vlog on YouTube. And there was a guy who comments from time to time, who just kept commenting and tearing into Solo. But you could tell by his comments that this guy hasn't seen the movie. Because he really doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. He's talking about how much they played up Lando as pansexual in the movie, for instance. That was something that kind of came out of the Huffington Post, kind of quartering John Kasdan, and then him sort of doubling down. Some would say virtue signaling the idea. But the idea that, you know, that was all, like, a conversation outside the film. That was not really something in the film unless you take a couple of scenes and really take certain things that are said very literally instead of as the jokes they were probably meant to be. Um, but just tearing into all this stuff, going not on having seen the movie or any personal experience with it, but going by the complaints he's heard from others or things that just got blown up in social media that he then assumes is something other than what they actually are within it. Um, and I know I myself guilty of that sort of thing because I did characterize, uh, some of the comments by, uh, old air, uh, a while earlier in the show, but I did at least let you know that this is all based on stuff that is coming to me, that it's not something I had seen personally. In most cases, you don't get that kind of clarification. And instead it's, it's just, well, I heard these things. I'm going to assume what it is. Um, there's somebody who, and I, I think I've mentioned, I think I may have mentioned him last time on the toxicity episode. Um, a friend of mine who just went absolutely ape guano um, a while back on the new Star Wars films and tearing into them from all these different perspectives, all of which were basically, for the most part, political angled perspectives. But then we get to the end of the conversation and the realization, people start sort of responding with actual examples from the films that counter the argument. And he just keeps going with the same tried and true. He's kind of repeating the same things over and over again without really detailed evidence. And come to find out by the end of the argument, this guy admits, well, I haven't watched any of them. I refuse to watch any of the new films. Then you're, you're lacking. If, if really, if you're going to say that these films are as bad as you're saying that they are, grin and bear it, watch it. Watch it when you borrow it from somebody or something so you're not spending the money on it, so you're not adding profit or anything, but watch it and get the actual evidence necessary to make your case. Not everything that detractors of the new films say is wrong. The problem is not being able to use actual evidence to back it up a lot of times because the people who are sometimes the most extreme against those films don't watch them and therefore don't have that evidence on hand. Grin and bear it. Watch it once and never watch it again, but get evidence so you can have an actual... Sort of a fair fight, in essence, back and forth, because it's one thing to argue against somebody when you know the facts and they don't, and it's a lopsided fight. But a really intellectually stimulating conversation, a debate that can actually get deeper into a topic, both sides know what the hell they're talking about and can go into it in depth with evidence. That's where real discussion happens. Not one side watches, the other side doesn't, and then they just sit around griping about something based half on assumption and half on what's actually there. And probably some ascribing motives along the way to, to make it even crappier. 
All right, and our last one before I sort of give those thoughts that were that were uh, ruminating or whatever uh, with me this morning. Uh, let's circle back to Dom Nardi. I said earlier that he sent a couple of different feedbacks, and they were about a month apart, which gave him a chance to kind of ruminate on this a little bit more, if that is the right word. I'm not sure that that is the right word. I don't want to say meditate, because I'm not expecting him to sit around going, Om, Star Wars Beyond the Films, Om, and so forth. Digesting. Digesting, but had some further thoughts, and we'll use that sort of here as our end cap before we delve into uh, the thing I was thinking about this morning. I do think this is going to be something that uh, uh, probably David and Dom in particular will find interesting when I share those thoughts, uh, probably leaning more towards David in the psychological side. Uh, but, but these are two guys who tend to think of things a little deeply and, and bring their, their educational background into it. Um, so, Dom says again... More thoughts on fandom and toxicity for your upcoming episode. This topic is still on my mind because I still find myself drawn into discussions on Twitter about The Last Jedi. While I probably liked more about The Last Jedi than I disliked, I often find myself siding with those who dislike it in these discussions, so some of my points might come from that perspective. One thing I notice is that it seems like everyone needs a consensus on this film. Critics of The Last Jedi seem like they need external validation for their criticisms, i.e. they expect people who like the film to at least acknowledge the plot holes. And I admit, I think people seem to be less forgiving of contrivances in The Last Jedi than in other films. Now, there were space bombs in Empire, but nobody cared back then. On the other hand, those who like the film seem to view it as a loyalty test to Star Wars, i.e. you're not a true fan if you don't like the film. If someone doesn't like the film, they often assume that person just doesn't get it. I saw one person on Twitter, a prominent Star Wars fan, say his therapist suggested that people who don't like The Last Jedi might be shadow projecting, and that they just aren't ready to learn the lesson Luke learned in The Last Jedi. Implying that people who don't like a film have psychological problems isn't a good faith attempt at trying to understand why a fan doesn't like a movie. There also seems to be a lot of intellectually dishonest argumentation and defensiveness. For example, someone I know online, and for the record am confident is not a misogynist, said it bothered him that Holdo, a senior military officer, wasn't in uniform. He's someone who likes more verisimilitudes in films. Did I say that right? Verisimilitude... No, he says verisimilitudeness. He's someone who likes more verisimilitudeness, there we go, in films. He's making me work for my money today, making me work for that free podcast. Uh... Someone else, who otherwise seems well-versed in Star Wars trivia, asked why it didn't bother him that Mon Mothma wasn't in uniform either. When I replied Mon Mothma was a politician, not a military officer, I got nothing. Crickets. No response. No acknowledgement that he had made a mistake. Same person made other arguments in defense of The Last Jedi that oversimplified or ignored what had happened in previous movies. And yes, I realize the irony in saying some fans who criticize The Last Jedi crave external validation, while I also wanted someone to acknowledge a point I made. I'm sure many defenders of The Last Jedi feel likewise. My point is less about keeping score, though, and how it's difficult to have a dialogue when you talk past each other. As of now, I have no idea how my point about Mon Mothma, which I do believe is correct given Star Wars lore, changed that other person's mind. Maybe they don't care what Holdo is wearing, and I can't say I care too much about it either. But dismissing someone else's point, especially with incorrect facts, seems counterproductive and dishonest. This goes back to my point in the earlier email. Yes, we should criticize sexism and racism. There was one instance recently in which somebody seemed to imply that he didn't like the new Star Wars films because it didn't align with his conservative views on identity politics. His comments made a female friend uncomfortable, as she thought he was trying to egg her into a debate, and that's not healthy. 
More often, though, it seems people who defend The Last Jedi just dismiss criticism of the film out of hand because reasons. If you like a film, more power to you. You don't need to defend your like to anyone. But if you're engaging in a dialogue with someone else, I think it's incumbent upon you to take the other side's point seriously. This tendency to dismiss the other side out of hand, I think, is what's frustrating a lot of people who didn't like The Last Jedi. This quote from a recent Washington Post article on Solo, I think, gets it right. And for what it's worth, uh, this is an article from the Washington Post called Star Wars is Faltering Because It is Obsessed with Its Past by Sony Birch from May 30th of 2018. Quote, I don't necessarily buy the idea that audiences stayed away because The Last Jedi ruined their beloved characters. Though I think the high-handed dismissiveness toward the concerns of these fans was more likely a damper on the box office than the suggestion that the series has gotten too social justice unquote. At the end of the day, Star Wars fandom is broken. The poor solo box office suggests it's even more broken than I thought when I wrote my first email. But both sides do bear the blame. The way Lucasfilm and high-profile fans who defended The Last Jedi reacted to criticism was extremely poor. I suspect we'll need to see changes at Lucasfilm if we want to right the ship. Too many people have just lost faith in the direction of the franchise. For one, I think Pablo Hidalgo should probably be let go. Some of his tweets attacking, quote, man-baby fanboys were extremely unprofessional. I think Kathleen Kennedy should be relegated to managing the business side of Lucasfilm. As somebody overseeing the films, she seems very indecisive, hiring and then firing several directors, leading to extensive reshoots on Rogue One and Solo. Based on recent news about how Solo got approved, I also just don't trust her judgment about which stories to tell. He's referring to a story related in an article on CinemaBlend.com called The Controversial Solo, A Star Wars Story Scene That Sold Disney on the Movie. It's a story by Sean O'Connell from the end of May. See, I'm telling you, providing evidence. So to start the sentence again, based on recent news about how Solo got approved, I just don't trust her judgment about which stories to tell. Who really cares how Han got his last name? Ryan Johnson's trilogy should probably be canceled. Sad because the guy is a talented director, but he's just become too toxic to too many. Finally, Lucasfilm needs to do something to get people excited about this franchise again. It also helped to get someone appointed as creative director, who in a Kevin Feige type role would take charge of the overall story. I always have trouble saying his last name, the guy from Marvel. Dave Filoni would probably be perfect, as it seems to have the respect of almost everyone in fandom. And if Lucasfilm does announce a new director, find someone preferably female or non-white, or someone with a lot of goodwill with long-term fans like Spielberg. But more importantly, announce an interesting story and move the overall saga forward. No more fan service films focused on unnecessary backstory. If we go backwards, it should be to the Old Republic with an epic tale. And for Pete's sake, treat your fans with some respect. Anyways, I know Lucasfilm isn't going to listen to this, but I felt like I needed to get this off my chest. I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks, Dom. Dom, you're onto a lot of things here. I mean, I've always truly felt that the abandoning of Legends by everyone in Lucasfilm was a huge, it was a huge mistake. I mean, it allowed this huge grudge for a lot of fans to fester. Uh, you know, I think that that's, when you've got so many people that put, time and money into something and you know the the story of it being an official continuity uh you know it was the expanded story and all that that it was at that time as official as anything else and then just to say you know well it's its own universe but we're gonna stop right there we're not i mean that feeling of abandonment has definitely 
given a lot of fans abandonment issues that they are working through or not working through. And we're seeing a lot of damaged individuals trying to cope in a new world. Like Nate was saying earlier, you know, like what Star Wars was before isn't what Star Wars is now. And a lot of these people were left behind. Fandom got tossed in a blender. And if you got hurt, well, oh, well, we got new stuff coming out. You should enjoy the new stuff. And a lot of people felt dismissed. And I think that that has created a culture right now where everyone feels like they are at war over what they feel should or should not be Star Wars. Um Mentioning Pablo being fired is something that really kind of took me back because I wasn't expecting that. But it made me think maybe a shift in position, though. I mean, I, I do feel like the story group isn't doing what we all thought that they would be doing, uh, which gets to that aspect of about which stories to tell. I mean, isn't right now that's up to the directors right now, no one else, which – Again, maybe they should change the story group's role. You know, put Filoni in it. Uh, make the story group in charge of where we're going. You know, put the better creative minds from both Legends and this new canon in this group. And do kind of like what they did with the New Jedi Order, where they had the Bible and they had a think tank that was coming together to create these ideas. And then they would give it to the directors. In that case, it was the writers. The writers would then take what was provided to them, where they wanted the story to go, and then they would flesh it out. Um, you know, what really worries me about everything going on right now is you've got a story group that I don't even know why we're calling them a story group. I mean, they're, they're really have very little to do with the story being told. I mean, it's not like the directors are being brought into the story group while their movies being worked on. So to me, it's that aspect of they provided this group, they call it the story group. And it seems like it's in a position to be this great entity. And yet they're playing mostly hands free. And I think that that adds to a lot of the issues that we have going forward in that regard. So, but you mentioned, you know, Pablo being fired. That that's what made me really think about it. Cause I have a hard time wanting Pablo out in general because he provides so much, but I'm kind of like, maybe his talents are being wasted where he's at, or maybe the story group is being wasted in the role that it is taking right now. I still would love to know more about what the story group is really doing because they've been so nebulous about it from the start. I mean, you know, we get in insider magazines, we get articles on how this was made, how that film was made, how this scene was made, how that was made. How come we haven't had a, a article on how the story group works and functions? I, I bet the reason why is because they probably don't even know either. And the more light they shed on it, the more it's really kind of a sham and a joke. Um, I mean, that that's kind of where your comments brought my mind just now. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> You know, it's interesting this idea of sort of the changes at Lucasfilm and whether or not that can right the ship, but at the same time, whether or not that can assuage anything that's going on. Because there's a part of me that says that the, the, the way that sometimes we see people reacting to the criticism and the toxicity around the creative talents involved in Star Wars lately, we'll put it that way, um, does tend to feed a lot of the uh, angst out there and a lot of the uh, uh, the conflict out there. But Star Wars fans were divided basically from the moment of the announcement of Disney's buyout, and it really solidified into polarized camps with that April 2014 announcement about how legends would be legends and there would be a new saga built around what they were going to call canon now. 
I had hope until that day. I was like, oh. But it's it's one of those things where that really divided fandom. And it seemed like it's just sort of the divide has kept going and the divide has solidified and gotten more toxic over time. But I'm not sure if even, say, changing out something, if Kennedy was gone, if Ryan Johnson did not come back for another trilogy and so forth, um, if that really would make the difference. Because I get the feeling that a lot of those on the, the far end of the sort of anti-what-Star-Wars-is-now side, uh, the anti-Disney side and so forth, it's really not about individuals. It's like the individuals, like, to, to, to their eyes, like a, an individual like a Ryan Johnson or Kathleen Kennedy is like indicative of the problem, a symptom of the problem, a big symptom of the problem, but that it's not the actual underlying cause, that there's something underneath that that just in general with Disney's stewardship of Star Wars is causing the issue, uh, and that regardless of who is there, you're going to see the same type of negative reaction to it. Um, maybe, maybe. Uh, I guess it just kind of depends on who those people would be. And we won't see that and see whether or not that holds true or whether it actually can change things as long as the same people are in this, the same positions. Um, but it's interesting at the idea that a change at Lucasville may be what is required, but that would be something that Disney would have to really push. And like I said, I don't see that necessarily happening unless somebody voluntarily decides to head off and do something else or there's some kind of scandal that erupts and whatnot. I certainly don't see them necessarily turning around and saying, you know, Kennedy is out the door, for instance. I do think that there is a, a need for a creative director type of person. Uh, the way that Disney is handling Marvel, or the way that Marvel is handling their own films, if you want to put it that way. Because, yeah, the story group does not seem to really be doing that sort of thing. It seems to very much be sort of a, we have a sort of a general idea of some basics and otherwise have at it. And it's not... Here's a list of characters you can make the villain. Yeah, I mean, there's just not really a sense of a cohesive whole going on right now. As I've said plenty of times, it feels like there is no plan at this point. Uh, and if there is no plan, and to a large degree, the story group is there essentially providing information on elements that can be used, you know, say, kind of like being human versions of a holocron database, that isn't necessarily going to lead to the kind of cohesion that we see. Like, we're not seeing Star Wars films... And maybe they should, maybe they should try it. We're not seeing Star Wars films do what the, the Marvel films are, right? The Marvel films are mostly, mostly chronological, though there are some alterations along, you know, along the way. Um, and the Marvel films are designed in these phases where the movies lead up to something. With Star Wars, it's, here's a trilogy here that's its own story, and we're going to alternate years to finish out this trilogy. And then we're going to do this other thing over here, and this other thing over here. And here's these anthology films that are just sort of Star Wars films that connect, but don't necessarily fit into building towards something big that we're building towards. Uh, maybe if they took the Star Wars films as a phases type of thing, that would give them a real sense of direction to head towards one goal and make sure that everything really is more consistent, uh, more intertwined. Um, I mean, in essence, it, it's hilarious to me that when we're comparing Star Wars and Marvel, that Marvel's the one where the it's all connected tagline actually seems to hold the most truth. Compared to Star Wars that was the franchise in all of sci-fi entertainment, all of geekdom entertainment, 
that as of the time of 91 actually said, we're going to make sure that all these different media all interweave into an enormous expanded universe of stories, something that then other franchises grabbed onto and ran with. Um, so that now we're even seeing things like, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, and so forth. They've got comic series that continue after the show was over with that are considered canonical now and so on. Considered seasons, yeah. Yeah, but you don't necessarily see that going on with Star Wars in a lot of ways now. Star Wars feels much looser, um, and that the plan, it, the lack of a steady direction for the films to go in perhaps means that a plan isn't, you know, in the cards. Um, but there needs to be somebody who's setting that direction. Even if it is someone that big chunks of fandom hate. Even if it's Kathleen Kennedy sitting down and saying, this is the direction we want to go, at least it would be, this is the direction we want to go. At least this would be a roadmap. And then it'd be up to others to interpret that roadmap. There's plenty of people who love the Marvel films, but hate Feig. Okay. But at least it's got the roadmap that's there. Uh, and definitely I do agree that Dave Filoni would be a fantastic person to do that because he does seem to have that goodwill and really has a good grip on Star Wars, not just in terms of what it is post-Lucas, but but the Lucas influences and where it goes in that uh, in that direction as well. Although I really don't want to see a Star Wars trilogy about wolves, so seriously, he needs to tone that down <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but it's interesting that he, he brings up a, a tweet by Pablo Hidalgo. Now... This is Pablo Hidalgo tweeting on his personal Twitter account. But people see it, know that it's him. He is willing to engage with fans and actually let them follow him and so forth. You don't have to do a follower request. How I require a follower request on mine. I have to say, okay, if you're going to follow me on Twitter. Um, just because I don't want a bunch of asshats out there. Um, not that it matters. Right now it's just reposting stuff from the timeline page anyway. Um, but it's kind of this thing where... Where is that line drawn between someone's professional and personal speaking, right? Which I guess kind of goes back to the Roseanne thing, right? And the Samantha B difference. Samantha B made her comment in her professional capacity on her show in a scripted moment. Roseanne did it on her personal Twitter account in a moment of what I am assuming is insanity. Um, but where is that line drawn when you are a public figure to the point where People look to you outside of your workplace for answers. And so many fans try to interact with Pablo on his personal account that it becomes almost as if it's a professional account, even though it's not meant to be. And people attack him on that account. There are constant attacks, him, Ryan Johnson, and others. And at what point does a person have a right or have at least... The, the intellectually honest uh, option to speak back, to strike back, to say something in response that might piss people off. If you spend your day being told you are a misogynist, a racist, a bigot, a homophobe, etc., etc., uh, as some media personalities do, for instance, at what point can they strike back at their detractors? And the problem is that with social media, there really isn't a safe way to do that, Right. You can ignore it. I guess that's the one say, but you can ignore it. But as soon as you speak back, as soon as you offer anything that smacks of being a defense that is aggressive, you run the risk of essentially giving fuel to the people who are coming after you in the first place. Um, and I think Pablo seems like he fell into that. Um, maybe that's why we have the defensiveness and aggressiveness we see in people like the Chuck Wendigs out there in social media. 
But it's almost as though when it comes to social media, if you are a figure in a position like that and it turns out that your personal page turns into something like that, that you have to be able to step back and realize sometimes, you know, it's a trap. Just don't respond. I personally have gotten to the point where there are enough people that follow the podcasts that I'm involved with or the YouTube channel and whatnot who have friended me, for instance, on Facebook that I'm having to get to a point of sort of starting to kind of cull that to a degree or friends, semi-friend requests on like PlayStation Network. Um, they were kind of reaching that point where it, it's, it's like people are expecting me to say something that reflects on some of my work or reflects on podcasts or whatever somehow when I'm just talking personally of things that I find of interest with friends and whatnot. Um, it's almost like with every post you make, it's these views are not necessarily those of the parent, whatever, you know, it's, it, it's kind of extreme, but there are people who are looking for opportunities to strike. Essentially, they are looking for the openings to attack and to essentially find anything you say and use it against you. Um, and he fell into that and it makes me wonder, you know, is there or can there be a different type of line where a defense that is anything other than a joke that is so lame that everybody gets that it's a joke and it has no scathing retort of any kind to it? I mean, that there is any kind of response that is possible uh, in the type of environment that we're in other than just silence um, because he struck back. And he generally doesn't. He generally is a, is a kind of a, a sarcastic guy, but often doesn't necessarily do that in a striking back way. And I think Ryan Johnson has dealt with a lot of crap and not really struck back oftentimes in a scathing way. And yet still the ill will forms based on the responses that are made, no matter how innocuous. So I don't, I, and I don't know what the, what the answer is to that, but to what degree, I mean, we're, we're basically that, that comment about Pablo is essentially a, a microcosm of like a Roseanne type of thing. Pablo said this on his personal account, which people take as a professional thing because that's where they can talk to him about Star Wars. Should that somehow have a consequence to him professionally? Um, and if Lucasfilm were to decide that that was over the line or that anything that any of these people say is over the line, then again, it is not freedom from consequences of speech. Lucasfilm is not a government entity. He could very well be fired if he goes that way. Uh, and, and again, that's that's what I think is probably going to be the the way that if any of these people leave outside of, of their own volition, it's going to be because of some type of scandal like that, more than likely, if it were to happen at all. Yeah, big on the if. I, I'm in the same boat of they're probably going to end up walking off to other jobs eventually. Well, even Lucas, when talking about things in in the later years before his retirement, talked about how, you know, why would I want to keep making Star Wars movies? Because you make these movies and people accuse you of, you know, you know raping their childhood or uh, they attack you for it. So why would I continue to do so? Why would I continue to put myself through that? You know, so maybe at some point they just say, you know, I'm done. I'm walking away. Um, all right. So the thing that was, get, was I was thinking about this morning. And I was thinking about it because of the Solo boycott thing and the, the weird juxtaposition that Solo didn't meet expectations. And there are a lot of factors that play into that. Could be marketing campaign, time of year, type of story being told, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different aspects. Could be the reaction to The Last Jedi and so on. A lot of different things that play into the success of a movie and whether it meets its expectations. But it was a film that didn't meet projections, but at the same time, also broke a record over the Memorial Day weekend. I forget exactly what the record was. Wasn't it like third best heist movie? 
No, it was something. It was something about like being the number one box office of X time frame, but I don't remember what the time frame was. Um, and it 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 it's still as of the last thing that I saw was still the number one movie in the country. And it's one of these things where I kind of have to sit back and say, you know, hey, how are we measuring success? Uh, but it's interesting to juxtapose that with this idea of the boycott and this idea that there were Star Wars fans out there trying to organize the idea of, you know, refusing to go see the film. And it got me thinking a little bit more deeply about the motivations behind that and the potential or lack thereof of success for some of these things that we see um, from the side of fandom that tends to be more negative towards Disney and, and Lucasfilm, the current stuff. Uh and whether or not there is another purpose beyond the obvious stated purpose that these types of things can fulfill. So what I got into was this idea that the boycott in and of itself, to say that the boycott actually had a, a significant effect on Solo missing its projected target, I think would be a mischaracterization. I can't imagine the boycott being large enough to do that. But also, from an economic standpoint, stepping back and looking at it, you look at the way that a company makes projections of profits based on a film. Or heck, if you want to just take a, a second look at it as like a supply and demand thing. And just looking at the demand side, the consumer side. Um, and who's going to buy tickets at what prices and what, which is kind of what demand is, right? Demand is essentially just a line representing the quantity that people are willing and able to buy uh, at all these different possible prices. But whichever direction you want to look at it with those... In general, the bulk of people who would have been boycotting Solo are people who, for the most part, weren't seeing the other Star Wars films. And you may have somebody who says, I'm going to boycott it, and then goes to see it because they already saw the other ones, whatever. But if someone's really hardcore going to boycott Solo, chances are they probably boycott or didn't go see the other ones or aren't partaking of the new books or comics or whatever, unless their trigger point for it was just something like The Last Jedi, something very, very recent. But if you are in that contingent of fandom, and it's gone on for as long as it has with the new films, I mean, we are two and a half years into new Star Wars films at this point, they wouldn't have been counting you as part of the projections anyway. From an economic standpoint, you aren't part of the demand anyway. Again, demand is, for all prices up to the highest possible to the lowest possible, how much are people willing and able to buy of whatever it is? But if you are someone who is refusing to go see the films, then even at the lowest possible price of like a penny, still, you wouldn't see it. You're not part of the demand for this. You're not part of the economic equation for it. The people who actually would affect the bottom line of this film based on projections are going to be the people who otherwise would have gone to see it, who would then be choosing not to. Like, I could say, you know what? I don't like what BMW is doing. I am boycotting BMW, and I'm not buying the newest BMW model this year. I refuse. <laughs> I was never going to be able to do that anyway. I'm not part of the demand for the newest model BMW. I'm not counted in that. Uh, unless you get to a point where the, the price range is very low on that particular line. But from the standpoint of a boycott, they don't have to worry about me boycotting them in the projections. I wasn't going to buy it anyway. There's no impact. The reason a boycott works is you have people who would have contributed to sales for the company or ticket sales or whatever it is who choose not to because the impact comes through the lost revenue that comes from that. The, the financial hit they take to their wallets, to their bottom line, to their pocketbooks because you chose not to partake. 
But if you've already been choosing not to partake for long enough for them to factor you out of their projections and equations, your boycott doesn't mean a damn thing. Instead, your boycott would only matter in terms of being able to convince others to join you in it who might have seen it, and their boycott would matter financially. You can't count something as a negative of something being taken away if it wasn't there in the first place. But I got to thinking about that and thinking about the the very vocal, you know, like like people putting out, you know, we're going to have a petition to try to get rid of The Last Jedi from canon or a petition to have Kathleen Kennedy removed and so forth. And A, understand that companies don't work based on petitions. The government oftentimes doesn't even work based on petitions unless you've actually got a government situation where you have, you know, statutes available for things like recalls and referendums uh, and initiatives on ballots and things like that. Petitions get your voice perhaps heard, but they don't guarantee anything's going to happen. And I think there's still a lot of, of a misunderstanding of how big the Star Wars fan community is, how diverse it is, and how thin it gets in terms of the depth of involvement gets. Because people on the far extreme like us, who are really into Star Wars, oftentimes start to think that we are the majority of Star Wars fans, or the majority of Star Wars consumers especially, and we're not. We buy a lot of stuff, but the majority of people going to see, for instance, Star Wars films, that's general audiences that are kind of interested in Star Wars plus general sci-fi fans. It's not the people out there, you know, buying everything uh, and delving into it in the minutia like we do. Um, those are the loudest and, and the most controversial you see on social media, so it may seem like it, but that's not the case. Just like, you know, people who partook in the Legends continuity when it was the official continuity, we were never the majority of Star Wars fans in general. But we felt like it because that was who we surrounded ourselves with. So if you try to do something like a petition to try to do, to get something removed, that's not going to work either. I mean, A, it's not, it, it's probably going to be brushed off even if they, they never, you know, they may never see it. But you look at fandom in general and the percentage of people who would even consider signing a petition, leave out the people who think that it's ridiculous because it's not going to make a difference, who don't sign a petition, and you're still looking at a fairly low number. I would expect that if we had a petition say, you know, that one, take the petition that said, you know, get rid of The Last Jedi from canon. Wow, we've got, you know, a thousand or whatever it is signatures. Let's send it to Lucasfilm and show them. They're going to look at those numbers and go, wow, only a thousand? That's the tiniest percentage of fandom. I guess we're doing something right and we can ignore this. Okay, That's not going to work. Um, there needs to be rational reasons for change. You need to make a business argument for change, but it needs to be something that has enough oomph behind it to really make a difference. And by and large, it seems like people seem to be okay with current Star Wars, whereas there are areas of fandom that aren't. But it's a percentage of the hardcore group who are already only a smaller percentage of that general Star Wars audience. Um, you know, whether you're for, you're extremely for or extremely against what's going on with new Star Wars, our voices, or, or someone who's, you know, like us, trying to find a middle ground and trying to find, you know, a way through, our voices are minuscule compared to all of broader Star Wars consumers. So most of these types of tactics won't work. I think that something like the billboard that was done for Continuing Legends, I think that is something that shows a passion for fans and was somewhat unique for its time. So it may have been able to make an impression of going, wow, you know, people really cared about it enough to do this. Still wasn't going to necessarily change the needle. Wasn't going to move the needle at all. Wasn't going to change their business decisions. The plan's already in place, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They were going to do what they were going to do. But that was sort of a positive way of expression. 
But if anybody thought that was going to actually be the thing that made the difference, they were, they were not seeing clearly, I would say. So to, to some degree, you have this thing out there. It seems like of people are either one of two things. If they are on the, we're going to boycott, we're going to have petitions on sort of that extreme activist side, I guess you would say of the anti Disney side. And then this happens to be because it was a boycott thing. That's the side I was thinking about this morning. That's why that's, my thoughts here are kind of centered around that, but it's what I was thinking about earlier. Um, it seems as though you, there, there must be one of two things happening. Okay. Um, either the people doing these things are delusional. Okay. They, and I mean that in the sense of they literally have convinced themselves of things that are possible or things that are realistic that simply are not. Whether it's the size of their voice, whether it's the impact they can have, um, whether it's the potential for these types of things to make the difference that just causes Disney or Lucasfilm to say, wow, you know, we had this whole thing we were doing and we thought we were doing it right and we were making all kinds of millions of dollars. But boy, you've just changed my mind because of this petition or you've just changed my mind with this boycott. My goodness. Right. Either there's a delusion of thinking this is going to have more impact than it's going to. Or there has to be something else that's driving this movement. Um, that there's a recognition that it's unlikely to actually cause any real change. And yet there's still a value being seen in doing so. There's still something driving people to do it even in the face of uh, pretty much guaranteed lack of success in the long run. And what struck me was that it made me wonder if maybe to some degree what a lot of times people are looking at as, oh, well, you're just delusional, right? That side of things. Or, oh, well, you're just a bad fan. Or, oh, well, you just hate this. Or, you just this. That, that, that sort of look on people who are being more active in trying to sort of turn away from the current approach to Star Wars. Um, that maybe while they're being ascribed all these different aspects of why they're doing what they're doing and, and being looked at as, well, they're just, you know, they just are out of touch with reality. If maybe instead what it is, is essentially this is, from a psychological standpoint, this is a coping mechanism. When you go through a period of change and it is a change you don't like, a lot of times there is a reaction to it to try to stand against it or trying to find some way to have an impact and feel like there is some level of control. And even if your voice is not going to be listened to, at least it could be heard. At least it's out there amongst the conversation and not being entirely dismissed, especially if you feel as though you and your side and your your perspective has been utterly dismissed at the beginning of the issue, that it gives you a chance to have some involvement in it in some way. And that seems to make a lot more sense to me, looking at this in the long run, that you would see all these movements and all these attempts to do things that are pretty much destined to fail, just from a realistic, rational standpoint, but that keep being done anyway. That maybe it's not about actually trying to get rid of Kathleen Kennedy. Maybe it's just trying to get a voiced concern out there about it and the coping mechanism of being able to band with other fans who feel the same way and have an outlet of some kind, right? Whether it's a positive or negative outlet, whether it's a harsh uh, outlet or not, but just having some kind of outlet in one way or another. Like maybe, maybe the petitions... Right? Maybe the boycotts. Maybe it's not about actually changing something. It's a, a faint hope of changing something that is recognized as not realistic. It's an intellectually honest approach to the idea that, yeah, we're doing it, but we don't expect it to change, but we just, we want that message out there. 
but that behind it is more of a matter of coping and looking at one's emotional and mental health as something that sometimes requires action, even if the action won't make a difference. But it raised another concern for me, which was this question of, but then when does it stop? Because what we're seeing, I think, is sort of a perpetuation through social media and stuff of this, right? One poll leads, or one petition leads to another. One uh, uh, group sort of lashing out leads to another group jumping on the bandwagon and lashing out of something else. And they sort of reinforce each other by supporting each other and so on. Um, but we're four years in, basically, as of two months ago, right? It's June now. It's two months ago. We are four years into the Legends canon split. And this is still going on. We are two and a half years into new Star Wars films. And this is still going on. Unless what's happening is that each new Star Wars film or each new big Star Wars thing that rubs the same group of people the wrong way is essentially a new inciting event that must be coped with as part of the bigger whole. Then at what point do the coping mechanisms become crutches instead of dealing with reality? At what point... Do we have to say, you know what, I'm driving myself nuts and, and getting all hot and bothered and I'm stressing myself out because I want Kathleen Kennedy gone or I want, you know, uh, these films gone. I want Last Jedi out of continuity, et cetera, et cetera. And really getting worked up about it. At what point does that stop being an outlet and start becoming something that, again, it's sort of like, again, if your fandom is causing you stress, you're kind of doing it wrong in, in essence, that at what point do you reach a point where it's becoming more detrimental to your mental health than it is something that provides you that outlet that was providing some form of coping? And if the decision finally is reached for some, for an individual that, wow, I've just got to stop. How does that decision get made? Where does it happen? And where do they turn? Because we're not in an environment right now that really recognizes the idea that you could be a Star Wars fan of what was and not be a Star Wars fan of what is. And that's actually okay because that is still a type of Star Wars fan. That if you say, okay, I've got to stop. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to back the petitions. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to keep saying they need to get rid of, you know, Ryan Johnson or get rid of The Last Jedi or whatever because it's been however long and I'm still obsessing about it and it's hurting my own mental health. I've got to step back. The, it, it's like the, the assumption is you're giving up on Star Wars or you're letting it go. Star Wars itself, because there's just that lack of a recognition out there a lot of times that you can be a fan of one aspect of Star Wars and not another. And it just so happens that, you know, maybe the current Star Wars isn't what you're a fan of. And, and, and those of us who are on the side of being able to sort of enjoy what is and what was, I think need to be open to being able to accept. I think we are, but I don't think a lot of fans are to being able to say that it is not just okay to like the new stuff and the old stuff or to like the new stuff, um, but it is okay to like the old stuff and not the new. And that it's about treating each other civilly and recognizing that out that, that, that open door to that still being a form of fandom. Because otherwise, I feel like the people who are on sort of the less fortunate side of where Star Wars is now and getting the most worked up about it are not going to have an escape valve. And it's going to continue to be something that drives them to the same places we've talked about being before. And you don't want to see that with any fan, no matter how vehemently you disagree with them. No matter how much they hate what you love about Star Wars. You don't want to see anyone go into that. Because as was said in one of the earlier emails, 
whatever type of fan someone happens to be, even if you can't acknowledge them as a fellow fan because their fandom is so different than yours, we're still talking about another human being. And finding ways to make sure that everyone has a way to come out of this whole situation mentally and emotionally healthy and either still in their fandom or even walking away from it has to be sort of an overriding goal. We can't lose sight of the fact that this is still a hobby every step of the way. No matter how much it affects us in our lives, it is still a hobby every step of the way. And even those on the most vehement side at some point are going to have to have an out for that. And even if they can't see it for themselves, we can still be the ones helping hold the door open. Um, and recognizing that maybe it's not about, you know, getting rid of Kennedy. It's maybe it's not about a boycott that's actually going to make a difference. Maybe it's about having an outlet as a coping mechanism until the time comes to feel more okay with either how it is or with disliking how it is. I just, I, I, I started to think, think earlier today about just, you know, just this idea that the boycotts and such, maybe there's more to it than just what it is on its face. And maybe those who are, uh, most mocking of it and, and disagreeing with it. Maybe you should maybe step back and say, you know what? Maybe there's more to it and we should acknowledge that rather than just dismissing it out of hand. You know, I, I, I didn't support the solo boycott. I really enjoyed the film, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if someone chose to boycott, even with no real impact, that it was all necessarily out of some disingenuous evil motive. Maybe this is what they needed at the time to get through their fandom. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I, I think you really nail it with, you know, we're, we're people, we're not names on a screen. And I, I think when we're sitting at our desks or in front of our computer screens or our phone screens and stuff, you know, we, we become solitary. We get into that in our own world thing and we tend to forget that. And I think that's the thing. Like, you know, you, you need a buddy system, man. You need a buddy to help check and balance you. I mean, you know, maybe your buddy recognizes that hard question needs to be asked. You know, is it time for you to step away or, you know, but you definitely need to have somebody out there to help balance yourself because, yeah, it's so easy to get caught up in ourselves and in our moments and become all about me, you know, and I think that that's a huge factor in a lot of what's going on with our fandom in general and that feeling of betrayal that we feel not just when, you know, the thing we love gets left behind, but sometimes when we go in to watch a movie like Solo and five of us go in and only two of us come out loving it. And, you know, one of us is on the fence and the other two absolutely hate it. You know, I mean, that's when it's always weird. Like, And for me, I want to understand why people come away with what they did. You know, I mean, I remember for me, the biggest thing like that in my fandom was Chewie dying in the New Jet Order. Because like I said, New Jet Order was always my favorite thing. So a lot of people... Chewie's death was there. Like, I can't take that. And I could understand that once they explained it, you know, I was like, that was, that was it for me. And that was just a fundamental difference of opinion for me. I, I actually, I enjoyed what they did after Chewie died. I, you know, some of my favorite stories deal around major character deaths. And while I may have hated seeing those characters die, the way that they did it for me was brilliant, but I understand it wasn't like that for everybody. And it's that aspect, like like we were saying earlier, of wanting to understand or making a choice to better understand. Amen. And I and I think as a, as Forrest Gump once said, and uh, that's all I have to say about that because we've gone for a while. Uh, this is one of our longest feedback episodes in a while. 
of course, one of our only feedback episodes in a while, but you know, still. Yeah, yeah. As of recording right now, we're looking at three hours. I, I, it will probably be pretty close to that. <laughs> oh, so nine hours or so of editing for me. Woohoo! Uh. Yeah. So now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us all the way through as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, and we highly, highly, highly encourage you to leave us a review there on iTunes while you're at it. You can help us grow as a show. You can also find links to both our Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any comments about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you real quick, our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free book. That's right, a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with the book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. No, just just, just don't quote us the just odds. We've said so much this time that, that I'm not even sure where, where to even go with that this time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, don't quote us the odds. Maybe that somebody is going to start saying that the word boycott is sexist because it's got boy in it. How's that? How's that? That's that a good one. That, that's a good one. That's a good one. I was thinking, like, what are the odds Pablo is going to send us an, uh, a letter saying, I really do not appreciate you guys selecting me out like that. <laughs> there are many other groups on the story group. Why are you guys always going to me and Chi? <laughs> we love you, Pablo. Oh, not Leland, though. I see how it is. I love you, too, Leland. <laughs> See, Leland's on my bucket list. Uh, yeah, Leland's on my bucket list. I've got a picture with myself and Pablo. I haven't got one with Mr. Chi yet. That's that's a must-have.